podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool. This is a robbery. Need you cool. Are you cool? I'm cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard. You know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'm going to get medieval on your ass. You're the shot to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. We've reached November, and that means we're down to our last two Tarantino films on our chronological journey through his filmography. What better way to kick off the Thanksgiving spirit than with a tale about eight people getting together under one roof to share a special meal? I'm talking about Quentin Tarantino's Western mystery thriller, The Hateful Eight. But before we hang some mean bastards, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the host of the Splatterhouse podcast and CEO of Scareflare Records, Mr. Sean Wheeler. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Thank you, sir. And I apologize in advance. I am, uh, for you listeners out there, a little bit under the weather here in the fall in upstate New York. The wet weather and my allergies are fucking kicking my ass, and they're hanging some mean bastards in my nasal cavities and in my throat. So I will hopefully (laughs) sound decent, but I do apologize if I sound like absolute ass. So, Mr. Wheeler, you were last on for our listeners. You were on my Reservoir Dogs 30th Anniversary Special. We had a great time on that, and so now you're here for your first official guest spot on an actual main episode. I'm excited about this. Uh, you have uh, some some new shit that's been happening with the uh, Scareflare record area of your business. And please tell all my listeners who maybe missed the dogs episode, you sons of bitches, what's been going on? We released uh, the 1988 Frank Lalagia film Lady in White on vinyl. And we Mondo had an exclusive of it, which if you don't know what Mondo is, it's pretty much the biggest film score and soundtrack company in the world right now. They just got bought by Funko. As a matter of fact, the, the little company that does the pops and stuff. Oh, I know them well. Yeah, I've had phone conversations with them. It's kind of surreal. And I live like two hours south of them, but the Lady in White sold out in under two minutes. And it like just to be able to do that on the first one was kind of a big deal. And then in the meantime, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth has come out on vinyl, which they're absolutely jaw droppingly gorgeous. And <laughs> those have been selling like that's all I've been doing 
doing for a week is sending stuff out. And this last week, we finally started teasing the Grand Duel, which has some amazing Tony Stella artwork, which if you don't know who Tony Stella is, you should Google him. He just did the 4K artwork for The Outsiders. If you've seen the new 4K disc that's out, he retweeted it. And Hideo Kojima, the guy that directed and created all of the Metal Gear universe, retweeted it because Lee Van Cleef is in the movie and he's a huge fan of Lee Van Cleef and his inspiration for Revolver Ocelot in video games, which Kojima is kind of like the Tarantino of video games. So it was really like I was driving when I got the email and like I had to pull over because I was so excited because my favorite video game of all time is Metal Gear 3, being the super nerd that I am. So other than that, like just been all i've been doing is packaging records i've never seen anything <laughs> like this before so i mean it's been it's been surreal kind of lately well congratulations and he also used one of my favorite characters of all time mr snake plissken as his role for snake solid snake yeah. in his games which i fucking absolutely love which very few people outside of certain circles even know that yeah like well in, in metal gear 2 he's actually called uh plissken like, that's right is the that's what he's going under so like he kind of is the Tarantino video games. He pulls a lot from, you know, everything that he can find for um, his video games to make the, the and the storylines are just crazy, but great games. Yes, agree 100%. I've been playing since I was a little kid. I remember going to the video store and like begging to rent Metal Gear and I got like Metal Gear 2 for Christmas one year, the Snake's Revenge one. So I've been playing them since I was really little, since I was sitting in front of the TV on the floor, you know, remote, so... It was kind of a big deal for me yesterday. Like I, I thought I was going to cry for a minute, and then I came home, and my <laughs> wife's like, who the fuck is that? I was like, never mind. I'm going to go in my room now. I mean, I've had some stuff go on with this already. Like, um, I had an exclusive record that Bill Mosley from House of a Thousand Corpses and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, he bought my last copy. Like, I was sitting on the computer, and all of a sudden, like, it came up, Chop Top's Barbecue. I'm like, Chop Top, <laughs> like, Bill Mosley. So, yeah, it's just there's a few little moments here and there. And, like, the Grand Duel, I'm going to try to get a copy to Tarantino down the road because I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for him. So as we were saying before we started recording this world that we have created for ourselves, these things that we have followed kind of like with Tarantino, he's taken his love of movies and made a career out of it. And we've taken our love of him and other pop culture stuff, much like him. And we've just started our own little projects and it's been really awesome to one, meet other people like you, but also to see how other, these people I've met and have all just, they've had their own little niche in the world and you just do it because you love it. And all of a sudden it's paying dividends without you ever thinking that it was going to, you know, like you didn't start this record company hoping that, Hideki Kojima was going to fucking tweet something out about you. Yeah. You just did it because you love it. And now that it's happening, it's, it is a very surreal feel to it because, I don't know, it's just great. That's one thing about the internet that I do love is even though it can be a cesspool, it does have the opportunity to sometimes reverberate back at us some amazing things we never, ever imagined would happen. And congratulations to you on this. This is awesome. Yeah, like I, the, the internet stuff is just surreal. Like I think my first brush with it was I shared a meme and all of a sudden in my inbox there's a message from John Brennan from the Jerky Boys, which I've been making prank phone calls since I was a little kid, you know, because of him. <laughs> and he messaged me and like, I have a really good friendship with him where like we message yeah. back and forth once in a while. And, you know, like I'll send him memes or whatever if I see something funny and he he shares stuff. So like you said, like, it's just kind of surreal, you know, like that some of this stuff with the internet, how, you know, like celebrities are more accessible than they used to be because you wouldn't have found fucking John Wayne tweeting stuff. You know, <laughs> no, no, you would not have. Who would tweet anything nice to anybody? He's like the, he'd be like the Iron Sheik. <laughs> if not, I don't know if you follow the Iron Sheik or not, but 
Yeah, he's been <laughs> he's been quite a cantankerous guy. But in fairness, they're all of a certain age from a certain time frame, so we shouldn't be all that surprised that they are who we always thought they were going to be. It is interesting. So of the people I've met in this world, you, my friend, have gotten some people to reach out to you. We've got Petros, who is also on the Reservoir Dogs other episode. He's on a Blu-ray DVD release for Red Rock West for Nicolas Cage, one of his favorites. Um, a young lady who will be on the Death Proof 15th anniversary and on some episodes in season two named Sin Electric, an amazing artist. She actually made an entire EP based on music for Tarantino listener to inspire his next movie. She met him at the Beverly. She gave him the tape. And I have had Kirk Boltz tell me to go fuck myself to be on my show. So that is the circle everyone else is moving in. Mine is still being stopped. I have had Kurt Baltz, the guy who gets his ear cut off in Reservoir Dogs, his agent reached out to me tell me that they're not interested in coming on a Tarantino podcast to talk Reservoir Dogs. So maybe one day I'll flip it and it'll be a yes and we'll get someone on who actually wants to be a part of the show. Now, I too will get to join into your universe of excitement as opposed to rejection. You know who the then the first one that you're gonna get is either gonna be Fabian from Pulp Fiction or you're gonna end up getting oh, Derek. Yes, that's who I need to do. Yes, you're right. I need to grab Fabian. She gets such. Sh- I need to bring her on. She needs to defend herself. She doesn't do anything. Like I haven't seen her in anything since this. You know, so like, and I think I, yes, I found out that because you, you guys were like, who casted her? I think it was on this podcaster, the Jackrabbit Slims one, and it's I found out that she was dating Bender. Is how she got to the front of the line. Oh, so, like, yeah, it was oh. one of the things because you're going to ask me if I'm a Tarantino fan. And I think out of everybody you've had on your show, maybe even more than <laughs> you, I am probably the ultimate, like, OCD autistic you're, yeah fanatic. you sent me some stuff i'm like okay maybe maybe he should be hosting the podcast maybe <laughs> i'm not doing enough work here <laughs> yeah it's it's really fucking bad like my wife's just like you're obsessed like she, <laughs> we just like i think we're we were going to talk about it anyway but um he's doing his book tour and both scott, yes he is both scott and i got tickets and if you want i'll be at the portland one on the second night where he's showing rolling thunder and if you want to find me in the crowd if you're there i will be the one flashing my tits at him from the balcony. So, yeah, with big QT written across the chest. <laughs> so, she's like, she's like, you're obsessed. I'm like, I am not. Like, it's it's not like he's like a sexy guy. Like, I'm not, you know, tapping into my, you know. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, this isn't. Uh, this, is, this is like. This, is, this isn't chicks with guns showing no, up. At I the haven't fucking been. Day. I've been. I'm 44. I'm going to be 45. I've been to probably 500 concerts. I've seen everything from Pantera. I actually got to see like the original lineup, white, the original white zombie. I've I've seen everything. This is the most I've ever been excited to go to an event in my entire life. So yeah, I'm I'm there with you. Thirty years. So I put up just actually probably twenty years. I'll be up if I'm honest. About twenty twenty eight twenty nine years ago, before dogs after dogs had come out, I didn't know dogs had come out. But since True Romance, and I found out who he was. It's just been my life for twenty nine years. It's it's always been a part of it. And now I'm going to be seeing him in uh, November sixteenth in New York City. I will be the one who will be streaking across the stage. <laughs> I'll be the It'll say, I was in the briefcase. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm s- just super excited. It's it's the closest thing to a religious experience as I can get to. I know some people yeah. think that's ridiculous, but no, it really is. Like, this is it's an opportunity to see somebody and just listen to him talk is just going to be absolutely uh, wild and fantastic. And I'm hoping maybe some people are going to ask some questions and maybe this will start the process of him. Because you know everyone's going to ask him, what's his next film? Like, that's just going to happen. And every place he goes, someone's going to ask that question because we're just fans and we just want to know. Yeah. 
And we'll see if that even starts a conversation for him, if he'll even start to bring up anything about what is up next and if it truly is last for Mr. Tarantino. I don't want to know what his last film is. I would rather just have him fucking cast it under a fake name, nothing leaks, and I don't watch trailers anymore, so I'd rather just go into it fucking blind. And But like you and I, I think we had talked a couple couple months ago when we were doing the Death Proof one, like he's saying he's not going to do film. It doesn't mean he's not going to do TV. He's doing books. He's doing that yeah, podcast, I which there. I enjoy the fuck out of the new yeah. podcast he's doing. I've found some movies in there that I didn't even know about that I'm going and watching that I'm like, this is fucking great. And, you know, all the books and stuff. So, I mean, he's more prolific right now than he's ever been. And I love yeah. everything he's doing. So, you know, it's making me more obsessed. And it's like, I'm going to I'm gonna be in a padded room by the time I get to this fucking thing <laughs> next month. <laughs> well, before you get to your padded room, it is finally your turn to answer your guest questions. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, we already know the first one, but we have to ask it. Are you, in fact, a huge Tarantino fan or are you just lying to us so you can sell records? I am the biggest one that you've had on here and the biggest one. I named my son after him. This is true. You did. Yes. I was close. My wife was close to letting me name it. It was close between Quentin and then our son, also Anakin, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I just didn't want him to be made fun of for being called Annie. So we didn't name him that. We didn't name him Quentin, but I'm starting to wish we had. I didn't get to name my daughter, but. Like, oh, you can name you can name him, and it's Quentin Tyler after Quentin Tarantino and Tyler Durden from Fight Club. So, and you just have to slide in QT in there. I mean, yeah, I did that intentionally, but yeah, like I, I think I watch every one of the films probably a couple times a year. I mean, you know, I'm reading books and just anything I get my hands on. I collect all of the seven inch records from the films. Like I've made lists of what I don't have. I just got the uh, uh, last race and one of the ones from Django that's like absolutely impossible to find. Like, so I, I mean, you follow me on Facebook, so you see all the- Yes, uh, every day I'm like, geez, this man has got endless cash flow. No, the, we get the seven inch, these goddamn things, it's amazing. Seven inch records are really cheap. Like I can buy, like I bought like half the soundtrack off from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for like $12. So wow. it's actually not that bad. So, yeah. Or people just don't know what to have. Sometimes. Some Maybe I'll edit this part out so no one can start raising the price of them because they know a QT fan's going to come out there and spend all our money on these seven inches. What was your gateway drug into the Tarantino universe? Uh, we kind of covered this on the Reservoir Dogs podcast that you just did. I was had tickets to go see Pulp Fiction, and I was working at a video store, and somebody recommended Reservoir Dogs to me. So I went to another video store because we didn't fucking have it. And re um, I ended up buying a copy and I watched it like three to four times that night. And then probably 20 times over the next couple of weeks. And I mean, I was quoting that thing before anybody else was. So every one of them I've seen in the theater numerous times. I think I saw Hateful. I saw the Hateful Eight once with the, the big road show, which actually came to Minnesota when I lived there, which is my favorite cinematic experience of all time. Like that, wow. going to see Hateful Eight, we took my dad with. My brother My brother is just as big of a fan as I am. I don't think I ever told you that, but we, my dad we took him with and drove an hour and a 45 minutes to go see this movie, sat there for three hours, got to see the road show. We got the little books and everything. We're driving home and my dad is just looking miserable. And I'm like, did you not like the movie? And he's like, they didn't talk that fucking much. And the old West. Oh. Yeah, like he fucking <laughs> hates it. He hated Django. Um, he, isn't, he hates Uma Thurman. Oh. Like, and it's just like, shut up. Like and we're just I like, think I think he likes his old westerns the way they were, which I understandable, but I have to believe that they had like they had nothing else to do in the West but talk to each other. All they do was, you know, all like, they did was drink, <laughs> shoe horses, and talk shit. 
That's all that they did. <laughs> and horns. So, yeah. but like he is, he's been pushing this John Wayne thing on me my entire life. And uh, I'm bored to fuck with John Wayne. And then I discovered Clint Eastwood. And that's what got me into Western. That's what got me, you know, and then you opens to Lee, uh, Lee Van Cleef and yep. all the Leone films and all that. And like, I love the spaghetti Westerns. So what's your dad's feeling on Young Guns? <laughs> really that is my guns. wife's favorite movie. And we quote, really? yes, absolutely. That's and, a great film. It's um, a great film. Yeah. What, what, we've broken up before, and I've actually gotten the text where she's calling me a Navajo because I'm unloyal. Like, <laughs> literally, I'm, I'm, I swear to God, um, when we were dating. Goddamn so, Navajo. Yep. Oh, yeah. Like, she just called me that because that means that you are, in the in that movie, in that realm, means you're unloyal. So. <laughs> uh, I was like, you gotta see the size of that chicken. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I could quote that whole movie that day. Uh, now, what is your favorite Tarantino movie? Kill Bill, a thousand times over. It used to be Reservoir Dogs, then it, it Kill Bill came yeah. out, and I own swords, action figures, um, me too, keychains. Like I, <laughs> I had a pussy wagon <laughs> keychain for like six years. Do you have the Funko Pops? I had, I, I had them. Um, there's no I, ha- I have them i only have one funko pop i have a clockwork orange with the mask autographed by malcolm <sighs> mcdowell right up above me that's and extremely expensive do not lose lose that that thing is worth at least a couple thousand because of his autograph alone but the the funko pop for clockwork orange is extremely hard to find and very one of the more expensive ones to find well it's not the old one it's the one at the mask the first one oh, okay. yeah they released a few of them I don't know why the fuck I know that, but I do. Um, <laughs> I, I will admit, though, uh, to your question, that I've been watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood way more than I'm willing to admit publicly. So <laughs> it's kind of moving up there. And every time I watch it, I see a new layer to that film. And I, I can't believe where he went with it. Yeah. You know, like it just, it, it'd be like directing Reservoir Dogs. And then he did The Godfather is the way that I look at it. Which, <laughs> yeah, or, no, good, yeah. no, fuck that. I listen to your other podcast, Goodfellas. <laughs> Goodfellas, there yep. you go. There you go. Get it right, yep. God damn it. <laughs> uh, in your opinion, what's his most underappreciated film? So there's three of them that you yes. guys keep talking about. Death Proof is one of them. Yep. Hateful Eight is another one. Yep. The one that I think is Jackie Brown, and half of your people yeah. you've had on here have not even seen the fucking movie. I know. It's, but it's okay. It's okay. Maybe they're not completionists like me or a psycho like us, where as soon as a Tarantino movie comes out, I'm in the theater. As yeah. soon as it comes out, I'm there. Like, I'm not missing it. I'm not like, oh, I'll see the one that's got VHS. No, I'm there immediately. And Jackie Brown, like, I remember when it came out, people were disappointed with it. Like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is also already starting to fall into that, where you'll see a post about it online and like half of it is hate mail underneath, you know? So I, I don't know, like, why people aren't getting that film. Or, or if it's just so long and there's not enough action or there's too much driving or the mute. Like, I don't know. But I think it's a lot of fandoms suffer from this. Uh, as I said, I'm a big Star Wars fan as well. A lot of fandoms suffer from idiots who want it to always be the same thing over and over again. Which is why sometimes the shows and other things don't work. Because creators always have to give fan service. And Tarantino doesn't give fan service. Tarantino oh. gives you a movie and you either like it. Or go fuck yourself. That's basically the, the he oh. gives you. If you don't like it, that's perfectly fine. There's other movies out there. You find something that you like. But this is what I'm going to do. And fans sometimes can't handle that. That's why they didn't like Jackie Brown. Not enough violence. It's not the Reservoir Dogs. It's not Pulp Fiction. You know, you come under this. I mean, it's not Django. It's not in 
glorious. Oh my God. And then they think that the Hateful Eight is going to be another Django. It's not. It takes time. There's a lot of violences we're going to get into. It just took a while to get to it. It's not exactly what they always remember. It's not Kill Bill. Then they get upset about it. Well, those are the kind of fans that aren't true fans, don't understand the genius of his storytelling and his mastery of it. And then they're really just a bunch of fucking hacks. So they can also go fuck off as well. Well, we're going through this right now. We are recording this on the Halloween Kills weekend. And the first yes. one was a homage. The second one was just pure slasher, body count everywhere. And then the new one is character driven. I fucking hated it. But <laughs> like they they took it in a direction that I wasn't expecting for what they did for the first two movies. And they weren't catering to any fans. You don't see Michael Myers. Michael Myers on screen for five seconds in the first 52 minutes of the movie, I think. Other than, wow. other than the, the, the recap at the beginning. And yeah. I don't know if you've read anything about this online, but it is absolutely getting torn to shreds. And I'm one of those people because <laughs> that's, you know, like I just, it's not what I was expecting and I don't, it, you know, but a lot of people are like, Oh my God, this is such a bold move. And Tarantino falls into that where the, these guys did not give a fuck. They just made the movie they wanted to make. And that's what he does. And uh, that's probably why I respect him more than any other filmmaker, you know, even Ridley. Well, I think we talked about it. When we were on Reservoir Dogs, we, we talked about if he cut the ear scene out, he's got himself a mainstream film, and he realized, I don't care about the mainstream film. The mainstream will find me. So, you know, a lot of these movies sometimes do find their mainstream audience after, after once it becomes a cult classic yep. and people start talking about it more. Um, Hateful Eight. Every time I watch this movie, it gets better and better yep. for me. First time I watched it, it was new and different. So I felt weird at first. I'm like, ooh, why did I really think about it? Second, third time I saw it, I fell in love with it more and more. Much like a movie called um, No Country for Old Men. Love I remember it. going to see that. I remember the ending at first feeling like, oh, did I just watch two plus hours for this just to end vaguely? And then as I saw it more and more, I realized it's the perfect ending. It should not have ended any other way than the way it ended. But sometimes, you, you know, you just have to kind of mentally process it. And and then watch it again and, and can give more continued watches. Then it starts to dawn on you the greatness of the film that you just maybe weren't in the right mindset when you first saw it. You know, so you, sometimes we bring expectations with us into a theater. And uh, I had a therapist, surprise, surprise, who always used to say, if you have no expectations, you can have zero disappointment. So if you go into something without thinking it's going to be anything, you can be surprised because you didn't come in thinking this is going to be the greatest or this is going to be the worst. You're just going to go on, let's see what happens. And when you go in with that kind of mindset, you tend to be less disappointed than you would be if you go in thinking, well, it's got to hit this note. It's got to do this. It's got to do that. And then when it doesn't do that, you go, oh, man, that really is disappointing. You know, I did that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where, I mean, you know, everyone, it's, it's a Manson movie. He's making a fucking manson movie. yes i didn't watch any trailers i went into it and i'm like what the fuck is going on and it's brad pitt driving and i got out in the car i'm like i don't know if i liked that or not what the fuck's going on and then it came out on digital and i watched it because the pandemic hit i think that's the last movie yeah. i saw in the theater yeah was was one yeah, like Hollywood. seven eight months later yeah. i haven't been to a movie since in the theater really yeah and well we moved out here and pandemic mm -hmm. and it's cheaper to just buy the digital copy and watch it at home and make our own food yeah so yeah yeah so like i i after watching it it took me my brother's like no you just you had too high expectations i'm like how i didn't know anything about the movie other than that it was a manson movie and there's yeah. no manson in it but i absolutely love the movie now and it's broken my top 20 so you know yeah, it just, it's my expectations were too high and that's like we talked about it on the other podcast that new texas chainsaw massacre just come out it's cannibal killers in a fucking farmhouse how extravagant are you going to get with this script <laughs> to make these fans stop being so rabid? And you, you can't. I mean, they, they either are going to yeah. love it or hate it, and you're either yeah. going to make your money back or you're not. So, you know, who are you making it for? You, you know? Yes. 
and Tarantino makes it for himself. Yeah. And that's the way it should always be made. You should always make art out there, folks. If you're making art, make it for yourself. Yep. Because everyone's got an opinion, and it all sucks. So just make it for yourself. If you like it, fuck what the rest of the people say. Who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantino-verse? I've heard a couple different versions of this question on your podcast, like the way that people are answering. My favorite is The Bride. Extremely deep character arc, blah, 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 all that. The one that I would like to see more about, like if he was to ever write books or... TV shows or whatever would be Bill. I would love to hear Bill's backstory. Ooh, yeah. See how Bill became Bill because Bill is a miserable son of a bitch. And how did he get there? Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much stuff that I think you were talking about on the Kill Bill one where you don't really hear the backstory of why all that stuff is going on. And like, I would love for him to dive deeper into that. I also love like Stuntman Mike, obviously, is great. I would love yes. to hear backstories on him. Yes. The Hans Landa would be great. I would love to have a TV show with Cliff Booth and uh, Rick Dalton. <laughs> I mean, there's yes. so many of them. Like, it's like trying to pick your favorite kid. You know, you can. I'd like to see Marquez Warren, where he came from, how he got to this point in this film. Yeah. I'd love to see his story. Yeah, everyone coming up on the everyone coming up on the mountain trying to find him. I'd love to see that. Oh yeah, like I would. Uh, I would absolutely love to see the um, the the after because. I would love. I, I want to know if Chris Mannix was actually the fucking sheriff or not. <laughs> I have an answer for you. We'll get into. Okay. I have an answer for All you. Right. Possibly. Yes, you we'll, we'll did. Well, well, yes and no. I, I don't want to give away just All yet. Right. But yes, it is in my notes. Yes. Awesome. All right. And our last question. Again, I always give Ryan Rebelkin the kudos for this. He was the one who came up with it, and I thought, you know what? That's an excellent idea, Ryan. And we're going to put it in. So, whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with his last film? If, in fact, his last film is. The last film. So I'm not saying Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he, he's already, someone's already oh said him, so it's okay. So I, I told you, I had two, and I've been fighting back and forth between them. The first one is Ian McShane, who played Al Swearingen on Deadwood. Phenomenal. The man has not won an Academy Award for Best Actor yet because he ended up doing Pirates of the Caribbean and other crazy movies. <laughs> I want to see him deliver fucking Tarantino dialogue more than anything. I watched that show and it's my favorite TV show of all time. When I watch it, like I just, I wish he was doing more and I know he's getting older. I would love to see him. Mm -hmm. Even if he just showed up and did like an Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood type thing. Um, My other one is Michael uh, Michael Bean from Alien. I thought you were going to say Michael Bay. You know how I feel about that fucking hack. All right, go ahead. Michael Bay. Gotcha. Michael Bean um, from Aliens, Terminator, the Abyss. Um, He was in Grindhouse, the Planet Terror part. And I thought that was going to be his big comeback. But I grew up watching him and anything he's in, like I'll pay attention to. And it just, it bums me out that he's not all, he's doing horror conventions and a few films here and there. So like, I, I wish that Tarantino would give him something, you know, I don't care what it is, gas station attendant, something, you know, to do. All right. It's now my time to turn into Pai Mei and impart on you wisdom from the film <laughs> that you probably already know. Here's some fucking facts. Jack. We're going to start off with my friends from the podcast Nobody Asked For, the jingle they made me. How many fucks are in this film? I kind of cheated a little bit. It's between 18 and 19. 
with Ratsa Bingo. <laughs> yes, you are correct. It is 18. Again, it could be 19. Again, all counts. I do research. Sometimes I actually count in the film. They're all pretty close. So no one, is, no one has called me out yet, but I'm just prefacing it. It could be different, all right? So if you sat at home and you counted and it was 19 and a half, fine. 19 and a half. <laughs> the, what I found was, no, I'm not talking about you, but the listener. What I found was 18. 18 is the standard number everyone has agreed upon. So don't shoot the messenger. I think that John Ruth says horse shit and goddamn it. I think 150 times during the movie, you could have a drinking game. Well, if you uh, listen to my other podcast, The Cheeky Bastards, I have a horseshit section, and yep. he is prevalent in it, and it is intentionally used. Body count. How many bodies hit the fucking floor in this film? Now, it takes a while for them to fall, but once they do, they're like fucking dominoes. I think it's 14 or 15 off the top of my head, but it's not like a huge body count, but you also don't see how many of them actually die at the end. So. so the number fluctuates, right? So the number comes out to 20. However, you're including the people who are already dead, which is some of the numbers. So like the when we meet Marcus Warren, he's got three already on his fucking... So the number is around 20. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. How many bare feet? Are in this film, and if anyone listened to the very first podcast, you would already have the answer. I have listened to all of your podcasts, and I don't remember. They may maybe one. <laughs> Actually, none. This and Reservoir Dogs are the only films of his that he has directed that do not have bare feet in them. I knew you were going to ask me this, and the closest you get is the uh, Charles Smithers, but he's in snowshoes, so he is barefoot, yes. but he's yes. in and I wasn't sure if you were going to count that or not. I couldn't remember that you'd said that there was zero in the first one. So. Well, if you remember, my good friend Steve Smith got enamored with Mrs. F uh, Femme Fatale herself, Sophie Fatale. Yeah. And he was in love with her, but her feet look bare, but they are in open-toed shoes in Kill Bill, so he got himself a little excited, if you know what I mean. Oh, I'm sure he did. And his little Bill got excited, and he, he got it wrong, folks, just like Bill did. He got it wrong. He just messaged me, like, yesterday, are you going to be shipping <laughs> the Grand Duel over to the UK? And I'm like, of course I am, dude. Like, what color do you want? Yeah, but want? you double, double charge that son of a bitch. He's listening. <laughs> double charge that motherfucker. I was so, no, just like, I, you know, I was just happy to hear from him, so. I like, mean, he thinks he talks one time on a podcast with you. Now he's entitled to some fucking merchandise, this son of a <laughs> Oh, he doesn't want it for free. He just wants to make sure I I'll know, ship I know. it. So I, I was just like, like, okay. I think he knows how much his shit costs to make. So Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino-verse. Now we get into the point where we do our Tarantino-verse connections. There are two actual and two sort of, and those two sort of actually go with what I talked about last month yep. on the Django Unchained episode. Our first one. Number one. English. Pete Hickox is a relative of Archie Hickox from Inglorious Bastards. As I talked about in the Inglorious Bastards episode, I believe that Archie, or I'm sorry, Archie Pete is a guy like an uncle. He's over over in America for so long. I just don't see how he would have laid his seed to father, to be a part of the tree that fathers Archie. Again, there's never been any kind of connotation of Tarantino saying, yes, in fact, Pete Hickox is the great grandfather of Archie Hickox. But one would go out and say that he's at least a great uncle or somewhere in the line that makes him the relative of Mr. Archie Hickox. And sadly, I don't believe the Hickox line goes past Archie as Archie too dies in a tavern in the cold. So there's definitely some kind of history there for them, for sure. Number two. The other one that's always seems to be in is Red Apple or Manzano Roja, as we call it in this film. The Red Apple Cigarettes has made an appearance in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, and Glorious Bastard, Django Unchained, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is the biggest, it's, it's become more popular than actual cigarettes, but 
It'll never actually have its day in the sun because at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Rick Dalton shits all over its taste, and that'll always end it as a bad marketing campaign. So you'll never have Red Apple cigarettes because they taste like pure asshole. Now our store dubs, and I'll let you join in on this discussion, and I felt I covered it pretty well in Django, but in case some of you didn't listen to Django, you sons of bitches, Django's green coat is seen in the Hateful Eight in Manny's Haberdashery. Where? I think it's in the beginning. I think it's during the, uh, when the five guys are there. The um, yeah, Channing Tatum. Well, when we get to, yeah, the Channing Tatum section. I have watched this movie 50 times and cannot pick it out, so that's why I'm like, you talked about it in the last one. Like, I where? think it's subtly hung up somewhere. I have to go back and look, like, where the look fuck for did it he again. find that? Yeah. <laughs> now, it's there, and a lot of people think that Shango was killed by Marquess Warren, which I totally say fuck that, you're out of your goddamn mind. I usually say if you have a theory and you like it, I'm cool with it. But this is one I've got to say, fans, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. They're wrong. Not ever happening. I agree. And not only that, Django leaves the coat behind when he goes back to Candlin before he lights all the white folks up. He goes back into the barn, he grabs her papers, and he leaves the coat but takes his hat. So if it is his coat, It got there by means that we don't know, and it was not by Django himself. The other thing is Django's saddle, which is in the beginning of the film. Apparently, it is on Mr. Marquez Warren's horse. Now, considering that this film and those two films are probably somewhere between 10 years apart in time frame, there is a good chance that Django, after his great moments at Candyland, became the spook story for the entire South. It also probably became a hero story for all the slaves, being that Marquez was a slave prior to being freed and fighting in the war. He would have heard of Django. He would never go after Django for any fucking reason whatsoever. Unless suddenly Django just becomes someone that we know that Django wouldn't become. So, my feeling has been that Django somehow, and he met up post-war, or prior to the war, and maybe Django could be the reason Marquis Warren became a bounty hunter, and I feel that he either sold him the saddle, or passed it on to him as he moved on in his career. That is just my feeling, that he would settle down with Broomhilda and once the war is over and they're somewhere else. So, how he gets the saddle is unknown, but there is no fucking way in hell. Major Marquess Warren, who burned down an entire rebel army prison camp and killing them, who enjoys killing white rebs, is going to kill the hero of the South at that point with Django. Just not fucking happening. Sorry. There's no way you can twist your brains around it or do mental gymnastics to make that even sound like that would happen. So there's our two sort ofs, but there's no fucking way that Django is killed by Major Warren for any fucking reason. I don't give a shit what anyone tries to sell me. Not happening. No, and like, I've never seen or even heard of, I mean, Tarantino seems to put it in a lot of his scripts with the, the black bounty hunters, so it's possible that they knew each other or something like that, but there's that scene when um, Marquez realizes who Smithers is sitting there, and Smithers goes on his entire racist tirade, and he almost pulls his gun out and shoots him right there. So, like, it just yes. kind of shows you know, where he's at with everything else, you know, yes. as far as the, exactly. He he's had it with all the racism to the point where he's faking letters just to be accepted. So that they'll leave him the fuck alone. Yes. So, yes. which makes him not very honest, but yeah, I don't, I, there's, I, I agree with you. And after you kind of put it in those terms, I was like, you know what? I actually like, I'll buy that. I don't, he probably could he could have bought the saddle someplace, but it's just a nice little homage that they threw in there. Yeah. But also, I mean, if you think about it, this, the events of Django happened two years before the Civil War. So when this is all happening, you know this quietly spreads throughout the South, throughout the slave world. Because yeah, well, slaves are traded and moved around from plantation to plantation at willy-nilly style. So you know he's eventually become a folklore. You know that even other plantations 
are going to start being worried that, oh, shit, is he going to come for us? Because, well, yeah. you know, he just take out Candyland. So the slaves are going to know him as a hero. The, the slave owners are going to be fearful of him. Even if they don't say it out loud, they're going to be worrying that he's going to be coming for them next. So I'm just sorry. You're not killing your hero. It's just, I don't, it's not. He's he's trying to free people. You're not killing any. You're not killing I don't him. know if people accept it as canon or not, but I, I don't know if you knew that they did the Django Unchained comic book line where they did it right yeah, out so of the Zorro. But then they did the Zorro one afterwards. So like he, I don't know if I don't know if that's part of the Tarantino universe or not. Like I think he had input on the story and everything. But yeah, so like he probably became even more famous. But that the lines at the end of the of Django where it's like you're going to be the one on the posters now, blah blah blah. You know, yeah. like it's possible that they didn't even make it out of that state. <laughs> you know, could be. So, you never know, and that's the great thing about this movie. You don't know what happens. He may own the saddle just because it was that famous. You don't know. Yeah. Like yeah, agreed. And now the gospel. According to the almighty Tarantino, chapter 11, The Hateful Eight. Well, that'll get us right into this glorious movie, Tarantino's eighth film, properly named The Hateful Eight. As I'm sure most people know, this script was leaked online and Mr. Tarantino blew a fucking gasket and pretty much said he was not going to make this movie. However, thankfully, after they did a brief reading with the cast in L.A., the cast was stunned and got very excited to make the film, and the great Mr. Samuel L. Jackson persuaded him to do the movie. Tarantino accepted, and thank fucking God they did, because this, in my opinion, is one of probably my top three now of his films. I've watched it so many times lately. It just endears itself to me more and more, and we can start with the amazing... Oscar-winning score from Mr. Morricone. <laughs> and when you hear this fucking... Because it kicks off the film. It is more horror vibes than it is a Western feel. Obviously, it's got the notes that you know that you're in Western with the sound. But it's all the, the vibe of it is like, if you were to take this and put it over, you know, just re-put it over the thing, which I know that's an homage to the thing, you would feel that it's a horror movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you would really feel the horror vibes. Like, the movie starts with you feeling tenuous and on your back foot immediately. You already yeah. go... Oh, fuck. We're, like, something bad's going to happen. And nothing's happening but a carriage nope. making it, well, its way through the snow. The Jesus statue, too, is kind of very... Oh, that wooden Jesus statue is fucking freaky. Yeah, and it's like the way that they zoom. You're going to ask me at the end, like, what my favorite scene is, and it's this. So you can just skip the question. The way that the music comes in <laughs> and the way, like, and the perfect timing of all of it. And a lot of people didn't know, like, because obviously, you know, that Marconi won an Academy Award for this score. Yeah. And a lot of it is reworked from the thing and unused pieces yes. from the thing. Which, yes. when the thing came out, this score was nominated for a fucking Razzie that year. So you put it, that's how oh, much yeah. that the thing was hated, which the thing is a huge, you know, like influence on the hateful eight. It's just, there's no blood, and no alien. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so it just, it cracks me up. And then, like, but this music that they use, like the fact that it took, you know, all these years and it went from being considered one of the worst to the best of a year. They nail this shit with the way that it comes in, the timing, just the feeling of dread of what is coming down this road because you see it for like a minute. Yeah. So, yeah, you're com you're completely right. Like this is probably the best use of score over, you know, like because there is no opening song. Normally we have that catchy opening song to set the mood. Yeah. There is nothing of that yeah. here. It's no. like a fucking slasher film as, yes. you know, the carriage is coming and you're like... And what's funny is one of those carriages was actually, you know, they walked in and killed everybody. They could have done, yeah. you know. It's just a brilliant start. Like, he starts with mood immediately. You're, you're fucking already tense. You're like, fuck, this is going to be something. 
And as we're talking, Tarantino's two primary cinematic influences on this film were The Thing and Reservoir Dogs. In fact, as you said, obviously there's parts of the score that weren't used from The Thing that he put into this film. And also, The Thing was the only movie he showed the cast, which is ironic because the star of the movie is also in his movie, Kurt Russell. So that was pretty fucking cool. Now, what elements do you see in this film? So, of both of them. Now, I, remember, I watched it again, obviously, and you can see a few. Like, there, he definitely takes themes, but I don't feel like this is a thing ripoff or a Reservoir no. Dogs ripoff by any stretch of imagination. You can see that they use central themes. Obviously, the snow becomes part of the monster. It traps them there. They can go nowhere. Just like in the thing, we don't know who's who. We don't know if we can trust anybody. Like, also, in um, Reservoir Dogs, we're trapped in one building. No one trusts anybody. No one really knows who anybody really is, so those are the elements, but anybody who says this is a fucking ripoff of either doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, in my opinion, or hasn't seen either of those other two movies. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, this movie was originally planned as the Django sequel. This is going to be a Django Unchained sequel. He started writing it and realized immediately it wasn't going to do service and he had a better story in mind than it as a sequel. So I'm glad it wasn't a sequel. I'm glad he hasn't really done sequels. I know people are going to say, what about Volume 1, Volume 2, Kill Bill? It's one fucking movie, folks. It's one movie. He just broke it up into two parts. It's one film. All right. And yes, he did promise a long time ago the whole bloody affair. And until that happens, it's still one movie. It's going to always be one movie in my mind. Yes, two different releases. And yes, I'll have two special <laughs> anniversary episodes for both, but still one film. That brings us to chapter one The Last Stage to Red Rock. To date, this is the last and third film of four filmatic releases <laughs> to use chapters. Obviously, Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2 were the first. Inglorious Bastards was the second, and this being the third. But this film is the only to have six chapters instead of the traditional five that he had used. Now, if they ever give us the whole bloody affair, whole bloody affair will have the most chapters, as it would be ten when you put that whole film together. There are ten chapters technically in Kill Bill, but since you broke it into two volumes, each release had five. So this film has the most chapters where it tops out at six. Now, Tarantino is a master at character introductions. And this film, I believe, really shines a light on that, especially with our introductions of Major fucking Marquest and John the Hangman Ruth. Right off the bat, we know these two gentlemen are some rough, tough, alpha male sons of bitches. Who's introduction did you like more? Do you like riding up on the cool-ass Samuel Jackson or do you like the fucking, as Smithers calls him, the hyena of John Ruth when he just points the gun out of the fucking carriage at us so we don't even really see his face? That's like the biggest fucking gun of all time, too. It's like the Joker it in is. Burton's Batman where he pulls it out of his yeah. leg and puts a hold it up there, <laughs> you know, like um, I think the two of them are pretty equal. Like, and yes. even OB in that scene, I love his character. I laugh. He's amazing. The get in here through the whole, like, he just fucking yes. keeps yelling it and the, that door's a horror <laughs> and all that stuff. Like, I fucking love his character and I, I was like kind of bummed he died the way he did, but I know. Yeah, I, we'll anything he's him. in, yeah. like, I'll watch it. Like, he's in the first episode of Dead Wood. He's been in, you know, Sun Number One and everything. So, but I'm a huge, Kurt Russell's my favorite actor. So, like, any, and when he showed up on screen and he had that fucking mustache that was so great yes. that he, he grew it out for two fucking movies. That's how great it was because he had yes. it in Bone Tomahawk as well. And Another like, phenomenal film. Don't fucking shave at all. Just come to the set is what they told him. And he showed up with that monstrous, beautiful thing on his face. You know? <laughs> so, You're so good. Yeah, as so soon as he good. popped his head out, I was like, yes. Awesome. <laughs> You're with two powerhouses. They both show up. I mean, you got cool ass Samuel just look sitting on a pile of dead bodies, yep. smoking a cigar with no current or a uh, pipe with no current. Well, he just kind of looks up cool. You know, he's just 
such a fucking badass, you know, emits the coolness. Then you get to John. He just admits that, like, over-the-top male bravado. He is just like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing in this? You know, like, he just commands everything. And the two of them, right away, you go, oh, damn. And you're not sure, if the first time you see it, if these two are even going to be friends in the film. We don't know if they're yeah. going to, you know, align with each other. We have no idea. And that's the great thing, because with the starting of the music, we don't know who's who and who's what and who's on whose side. We just know they're all hateful, and there's eight of them. So we don't really know who's doing what to who and who wants to fuck someone else over. So... We get those two gentlemen, and then we get that duplicitous bitch, <laughs> diabolical duplicitous bitch, he calls her, Daisy Domergu. I love that we would never know what Daisy did. We don't know why she's wanted. We have no idea. And we know she's a murderer, yeah. but sometimes I feel, just like a lot of things Tarantino does, not knowing is better. Not knowing what she's done is better than knowing. The second time I saw this in theaters, um, he hauls off and cracks her right at the beginning there yeah it does and three women in front of uh, in front of me i went and saw it alone on an afternoon three women in front of me got up and left after the first punch didn't even give it a chance because i mean from the way it sounds she's just as if she got to ten thousand dollars just for being in this gang and for her actions and everything like obviously she's done some diabolical shit yes. and it's never said on film and all it would have taken was one sentence, and there's no backlash to this film for the way she's treated through it. Well, I think Mr. Mulberry gives it away a little bit when he has, and we're going to get to the hangman speech when he talks about it, when he says, when they find a, a trigger a woman can't pull. You know what I mean? I think he's alluding yeah. to the fact that Daisy has pulled her share of triggers before, yep. and Daisy probably kills women and children just as much as she does anyone else. So I feel like Daisy's got zero morale. I also thought that Daisy's normally like a cowboy type character in this and he caught her apparently i don't know if it's in the original script or whatever but he caught her trying to get onto a boat to go to france or something i've read that on numerous sites where that's why she's all dressed like the dress and stuff because it yeah, doesn't match different. her normal character yeah um so she was a fugitive of justice as well so and he did a great job of naming her Daisy. Daisy does not have any kind of strong feelings to her. You hear Daisy, you think, oh, it's someone frail and meek and just a nice girl. Like da You don't hear someone like Daisy. You, know, you think Daisy Duke. You think someone who's hot and sexy, but you're not like, da oh, shit, Daisy's coming. So I like that he flips the use of that name to make it seem like she's a, you know this innocent woman when in reality she's a duplicitous bitch, as John Ruth calls her. Yeah, and she, she plays this part like she should have won. Best supporting actress for yes. it, I think. Yes, um, she should have won. She's unreal in that movie. And you think about it's the girl from Fast Times at Ridgemont High that everybody had crushes on, <laughs> you know, for being just kind of extremely laid back and everything. And then they put her in this and it's like, well, holy shit. <laughs> Where has yes. she been? Mm -hmm. Like, and she's made a comeback because of this film. It's another one of those ones where she, I hadn't seen her in anything in years. Yeah. All of a sudden she was in Annihilation. There's a couple other movies I saw her in too. She's great in Annihilation. Yeah. Yep. Now, I don't know if you know, I mean, you probably did if you watch more times, but she starts to flirt with Warren immediately. Immediately. Like he said, she's duplicitous. She's doing that intentionally. She clearly has, I don't know if she has full on hate for black people or just hate for people in general who aren't a part of her gang. You know what I mean? She says some things, but her words and her actions sometimes don't meet. So you don't know where Daisy truly is. I always feel like she's always trying to play each side against each other. So she's a pot stirrer. She wants already, she can feel that Warren and him know each other. And so she doesn't want them to team up. She, because she knows where they're headed. So yep. She wants Warren to be more on her side so that he's disarmed when they get there because she knows what they're rolling into. And so she's flirting with him. 
him. She flirts with him in the cabin, too. Like, she flirts with him quite a fucking lot in this film, which, yeah. if you're not paying attention to it, it might slide by, but she is totally flirting with him. And he especially sees it in the, when she winks at him in the fucking carriage, and he gives her that look. She has, like, such a weird relationship with John Ruth as well. If you Next time you watch it, pay attention to, like, you know, the way that she's pulling on the chain and everything, and he instantly knows right what the fuck it is. You know, I've got it coming, goddammit. They've almost become reliant on each other. But it's almost a Stockholm syndrome. It's, it's starting to move in that way. You know what I mean? Bit, she's yeah. she's been in chains long enough with him that she's starting to I don't want to say see him as like her owner kind of thing, but like she definitely knows there's a power dynamic and like she's almost like father child kind of feel to it. Where well, it's, she it's needs like him. that um those the uh, one legged or the where you tie your legs together and try to run and do races. Yes, when you're the three legged run. Yep. It, you either work together and they're tied together. You're either going to work together, you're going to fall right on your ass. And I think that they've become reliant on each other, trying not to hurt each other while this is going on. Because I mean, look what happens when she gets punched and gets knocked out of the fucking carriage. Yes. You yes. know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he says. You're doing hits her. You hear them bells, bitch? They sure do sound pretty. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> Now, again, I don't want any of my female listeners to think that we're saying it's okay to hit women or like that. However, in this film, you always got to take where this is taking place. It's taking place in the 1800s. I'm not saying it makes it right. This is the time frame in which it's in. This woman's clearly a horrible human being. So I'm not saying that makes it better, but just like in the movie we're going to get into next month, when we fuck up the Manson people, they killed a woman and cut her baby out. All right, so let's not feel too sorry for one of them getting their face smashed into a fucking fireplace. She didn't feel that bad in real life when she was stabbing a woman 37 times who was also pregnant and then cutting her child out. So let's, you know, let's hold back on the tears for these people. They're not victims, all right? Now, what I love about this film, and you don't realize it's going to be such an important thing, and Tarantino does this a lot, it's the Lincoln letter. It's just the mention of it to start with. When we talk about the Lincoln letter, and he hands it to John Ruth, and John Ruth doesn't read it out loud except for the one little part at the end. It just seems like, okay, that's, you know, I mean, it's, it's at the times. I, I mean, Marquez Warren could very well be a pen pal with, the, with Lincoln. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a whole lot of anything. And it's just a genius twist because we're gonna, it's going to be brought up again another time. It's going to change some events then. And then it gets brought up one more time. Like, the genius of how he just seeds it in and it comes up every now and again. And it's used a really good plot point each time. I love because this time, this is going to how we're going to get to the end of this first chapter. And I'll read the letter and then she speaks. Bits on it, and boy, Marcos Warren fucking knocks her in the fucking face and knocks her out the fucking carriage. I did not see that coming the first time I saw the movie. No. And I'm gonna be honest with you, folks, I laugh my ass off because the funny part is not her getting punched. It's Ruth looking at him because he knows in one second that she's gone the door. He looks at him like, "What the fuck, man?" Because he knows he's going out with her. If you watch it enough times, every time he gives Warren the look after he's punched her, he's just like, "It's like when your friends do something like, what the fuck, dude?" He goes out the fucking door with her. I fucking love it. It's, it's a funny part. Not her getting punched, but the reaction of fucking Ruth being like, you motherfucker, not the fucking door. He gets yanked. <laughs> you had went through like all the genres that this movie is kind of like, you know, under the umbrella of, and you didn't even mention comedy because this movie is fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's it's that dark humor. It's that funny moments because it oh, breaks yeah. up the fucking tension and suddenly you just, you find yourself laughing because you're willing to laugh at almost anything at that point because you're so fucking tense. You're just like, God, I need a break. I need a break. Especially like you're about to introduce the Mannix character and I cannot la not laugh at that son of a bitch through the yes. whole movie. Like he just is the comic relief, but he steals every scene he's in. He's brilliant. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant, brilliant in this movie. To bring up Reservoir Dogs, he's the Chris Penn character. He's nice guy Eddie in this film. He just he could steals be, the or, scenes. You know what I mean? Or he could, yeah. If they redid it, he also could. Like I thought you were saying, you're gonna if they did a remake. Oh, he could be Mr. Pink. Mr. Fucking Pink. Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, he's just unreal. Well, I'm I'm rewatching Justified right now, and every time he shows up, I'm just like at attention because he is so great in everything he does. Yeah. One of my favorite sci-fi movies is Predators, the sequel that they made about uh, ten years ago. I love him in that. He, he, yeah, <laughs> I just, he's just fantastic in that. He steals. Um, the first thing I ever saw him in was uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. He's the cop yes. that is telling the story about how he got bit by a fucking cocker spaniel and he's afraid of dogs, and he absolutely steals the whole scene from the the old man that played the old Private Ryan. You know, is who that the old man is. Yeah. And it's just like. Like who the fuck is this guy? Because I didn't watch <laughs> I didn't watch the Shield, so like you know that's Ooh, kind of where he yes, became. Yes. I'm working on it. Okay, I only got so great many show. Hours it tapers off towards the end, but the first few seasons of the Shield are uh, unreal. Yeah. Now this this starts a thing that Tarantino's been doing, and I've paid more attention to now that as I've been going through them. But we get a White Stripes song that seems out of place with it being a western. The Apple Blossom song. I love the White Stripes. It's not just a cute song. It's foretelling the events that will transpire later in the film as applies to Daisy. And this is not the only time he does foreshadowing. There are several moments in this film. After, obviously, Warren slaps Daisy, causing her to go out to drag John Ruth with him, he says, you about ripped off my arm, which, later in the film, Daisy will chop off his arm when he is dead. Also, one point, Ruth asked Daisy if she would like some snake bite in her coffee. Later on, someone poisoned the coffee pot. And then Mannix makes a remark about lighting the place up when they're going to light some candles, which is a bit of an allusion to the shootout that will take place 30 minutes to an hour later in the film when they do it. So lots of little nuggets are dropped in there very smartly through some dialogue that Mr. Tarantino does. But I love the Apple Blossom song. And the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this is kind of like Cat People when they did it in um, Inglorious. And then the way he frames it and the time of the music, it's right on Daisy's face. And if you listen to the words, I should have wrote them down, but it's talking about how you know, time is coming when you're going to be free and it's just looking right in your face and it's completely telling what's coming up down the road, which we just don't pay attention to, which is, once again, the genius of his ability at making movies is seeding things in there. He just drips it for us. He doesn't feed it to us. You just, if you're not paying attention to it, you miss it. But those of us who start to pay attention to it, we see his breadcrumbs along the way. And I had heard, I don't know if it's 100% true or not, because I, I've seen it on a few different things that I've read, but Jack White allowed the use of that song as part of, you know, Tarantino makes deals all the time. You do this for me, I'll do that. Of course. For the U.S. distribution of the Hateful Eight on vinyl, which Third Man Records, owned by Jack White, put out. Yep. And there was another company overseas that put out an uglier version of it (laughs) on vinyl. (laughs) So... Yeah, like the, I'd heard that that was kind of a deal that they'd made because Jack White had always wanted to put out a Marconi score through his label, and this was his chance to do it. So, and if you don't own it on vinyl, you should fucking find it. It's really, really have cheap. To. It's yeah, under I 20 bucks. Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's a three record big set that I have that's just gorgeous. So, it is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. That brings us to chapter two Son of a Gun. The great Chris Mannix played with brilliance by Walton Goggins. He is despicable and a nasty piece of shit throughout most of this film, but nevertheless, Mr. Goggins plays him to fucking perfection. He's the only one with a character arc through the whole movie. Yes, yes. And this is the genius, because when we first meet him, he's the first person you're like, I don't know what Daisy's done. I haven't made my mind up on Ruth, but we already know that we're on Warren's side no matter what. Like, it's Samuel Jackson. Unless he's playing Steven, we're always like, I'm going to ride with Samuel <laughs> Jackson. I'm riding with Samuel the whole time. Like, even in Jackie Brown, I'm like, Lewis deserved to get shot. Lewis is a fucking idiot. I'm always with Sam, except for Steven. And so I'm like, all right, I'm with Sam. But the first person, I'm like, we got to kill this motherfucker. It's Walton Goggins. Like, as soon as he comes around, I'm like, oh, 
all this really? redneck racist? Well, because the way he starts to talk later is oh. when the carriage. And he goes into his whole big diatribe. The whole time, why people are safe is when black people are scared. I'm like, all right. I've heard this, especially nowadays. I'm like, I've heard this one too many times. And this motherfucker needs at least a couple of buckshot shampoos to his motherfucking face. <laughs> and so right off the bat, I'm like, fuck this guy. I can't stand this redneck piece of shit. I want him to die. And obviously, as the movie goes, we slowly fall in love with him more and more and realize that sometimes he may be a little more bark than he is bite. You know what I mean? He may just be covering his own ass and his own insecurities with his, his talk. Because at the end of the day, once he does have a slow bond with Warren, well, we'll get to it at the end. He, there's there may even be a change in his opinion of things as as time has gone on in this one day in this fucking terrible oh, I, cabin. I think that, in my opinion, like this whole that whole thing that you're talking about, the change of opinion, it's almost like uh, American History X, where he spends yes, all that yes, time yes, in yes. prison with you know what he hates the most and ends yep. up building a friendship off from it. Yeah, realizing that he didn't know what he's talking about, he went with what other people said instead of actually getting to know for a fact what people were like. So yes, no, agree with you. Yeah, and also the. I mean, racism is something that some people are, are most people are taught. Yes, 100%. He's not a violent person. If you pay attention, every time somebody gets shot, he's the one screaming like a little bitch in the, in the, you know, oh, oh, yes. he's screaming. <laughs> yes, yes. He's not used to all that violence and stuff. So even yes. though his dad is like this big war, you know, raider yeah. or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Like, he's not like that at all. Yeah, you wonder how much he was actually involved with what his father did as opposed to just, like, trumpeting up his father. Not much is what I think based... Because the way he looks is like he's never even pulled a fucking gun before, you know? And the way he screams and stuff, it's very comic relief. But (laughs) if you're paying attention to it the way that you and I do, you see that you instantly are like... You start seeing holes through this tough exterior that he tries to to show. Well, it happens real quick because it actually happens in the carriage. He gets into the post-war talk between him and Warren. And look, as I said in Django, Tarantino has lots of opinions on stuff. He just finds great ways to do it in his dialogue and make characters talk about it without talking about it. He doesn't come out and say, here's my stance on racism. He just lets his characters talk for him and the actions of how he feels speak for him. And if you're an idiot and you don't see that, then I don't have to tell you. Wake up and smell the fucking roses. But the way he has them talk, and it's weird because it comes out in 2015, right before everything that's about to happen in 2016. It's a real look at how America then and sadly today still feels in racial tension. And it also brilliantly sets up this ultimate tension that we think now the two opposing forces, we're not even worried about Don anymore. We don't even worry about Ruth. We're like, okay, Warren and Mannix, North, South. These are the two opposing forces that at the end are going to square off. And boy, do we get the wool pulled over our head as those are the two people that will actually unite at the end on a common goal, which again is kind of Tarantino's point. You know, I think that's kind of what he was he was seeding for us. He's seeding so that we could both see the two opposing forces, how they're separated by miles of their own beliefs. And then at the end, they're able to come together for their own benefit. So well done. It's a beautiful relation it's a beautiful relationship it, it brings tears to my eyes when i watch it <laughs> yes i mean this is i mean it's one this is one of the most pivotal scenes in when when they're talking and then warren has enough of it and realizes there's no more he has to put up with it so he puts his gun to his head he says, oh no 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 you got me talking politics i have <laughs> I stolen that line where that. i work where people will start talking about politics <laughs> and i'm like i'm anti-redneck and everything up here where i live in washington and they're they're like what you don't have a gun in your car right now and it's like no oh shit man you guys got me talking about politics you like, got I'm me gonna... talking politics yep. i'm just gonna lay back and let this beautiful coach rock me to sleep i just love he says he goes from like only way why people and then i'll say oh no 
no. He just quickly backs up. Chalk it up to Warren's Hill. <laughs> His delivery oh. of everything that he says. I'm. I was just watching the special features for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All he does is the fucking old Chattanooga commercial, and I wish it was in the movie just to hear it because the way he does it is fucking unreal. Oh, it's just so good. It's so good. Now, as you said, it's not actually ever proven at any point in this film whether Mr. Mannix is or is not the sheriff. So, folks can't see what I'm about to do. However, oh, yeah, I do I, have the Funko Pop. Now, on the Funko Pop that I'm showing Sean, I'll put on my socials. His name is on it, Sheriff Chris Mannix. Now... Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean it's so, as Chris Penn would say. Well, doesn't necessarily mean it's so. But at least in the Pop Funko world for the Hateful Eight, the four they put out, he is given the title Sheriff Chris Mannix. However, if I'm looking at him, there is no star pinned on him, just like there wasn't in the movie. So just take that what you will. But if they did a Michael Madsen one from the movie, that fucking box would say Joe Gage instead of Grouch Douglas, which is You're probably absolutely right, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, so, the ones they did were John Ruth, Marcus Warren, Dave. Darmagu and Mannix. Those are the only four that make it. The first four that we see in the film. Yep. But he never made any more. Well, they never made any more for him. So, no unfortunately. <laughs> no OB. No anybody. So, that's what we get. That moves us to the biggest chunk of the film. And that is Chapter 3, Minnie's Haberdashery. Now, <laughs> as you were saying, the door gag. My God. My God. My God. I I think I've maybe put on social what my favorite funny moments might be, and I may have been wrong. I don't know if I put the door gag or not. I can't remember. If I didn't put the door gag, I lied to all of you. The door gag is my favorite funny moment in any Tarantino film. It is nonstop hilarious. The way they act, I don't know how they got through it on set. Because it happens twice in the film, and when it happens, it is fucking just genius each time. But the first time, you gotta kick it in. <laughs> yeah. Two pieces. Of, one ain't good enough. One ain't good enough. <laughs> it's just it's the back and forth of screaming. <laughs> and uh, the genre is, would you <sighs> shut up? <laughs> oh, he's like, who, who broke that door? That Mexican? <laughs> that door is a whore. Yeah. When Obi which, goes back in the next time. That door is a fucking whore. <laughs> which is my favorite is my favorite meme from oh, last year. With God, the, I, I, I sent it to you, I think. It's just a picture of the door, and it says, this door is a whore. <laughs> oh, I have said that so many times. Like, if a door doesn't close, you didn't close, right? bang my I mean, This door is a whore. So fucking. Yeah, and then then John Ruth and her screaming in Smithers' ear. Two pieces of wood. They're just, everyone's just yelling. And Two pieces of wood. It's so... <laughs> Yeah, I love how the first time, I love how Mowbray is echoing Gage. God damn, we got to put two pieces of wood. Yeah, two pieces of wood. <laughs> Just, that's, that's, the two and voices are so different. I, <laughs> so I cannot awesome. stand the Tim Roth character through this movie. So I but love Tim Roth. Him. I, I, yeah, him. Yeah, it's I the think, voice. I think you're looking at it in a different light when we're done. I think you will. Oh, I think maybe. You'll, but I, I, you're not going to probably change any of this. But maybe right. not. But but I might give you more information as why you don't like okay. it and what what that is. Oh, but folks, I'm telling you, it's so much fun. I mean, you're so tense. We've had attention. I mean, the, everyone meets each other the first two sections of this movie, and it's tension. Like you think you think blood's gonna be shed within the first three minutes. You know, like we're not sure if Ruth and Warren are good. And then when Mannix is thrown into the mix, it's like holy shit. It's like the North versus the South in the carriage. Like holy fuck. And then we show up, and this door gets kicked in, and all just everything. You you, you go ah. You relax for a second. Now, not sure if you caught this or if my viewers or viewers, my listeners caught this. But when Daisy and John Ruth first enter the haberdashery, and Ruth is walking around, you know, all cock of the wood, just stomping through. Oswaldo looks over to Joe multiple times before following Ruth around. It is 
Oswaldo who directs Ruth to the coffee beans. And while his back is turned, he is prepared to shoot him. However, Daisy notices this and steps between the two of them. And when she does that, she also then covertly mentions that there are more people outside. All of this is done to await a better time to kill Ruth and the bystanders. I think this is genius Subtle writing and direction. First time I watched it, I'm not paying attention. I mean, because the great thing is, Russell comes in like a fucking bull in a china closet. He comes in with all the strength and gusto of any man you've ever met. He's coming in like a gorilla. He is basically telling you, you know, you're going to shit when I say this shit. You're going to breathe. You know, he's just basically running the fucking show. And so you're just mesmerized by him walking through. You're now meeting three new characters. You have no idea who the fuck these motherfuckers are. And then there's Daisy. And then she conveniently, you know, and you don't notice it unless you watch it enough times. The first time you watch it, you're like, it makes, you know, you don't even think about it that she just steps between them. You don't even think about it because at that point, you don't know that this English gentleman's on her side. You have no clue yet. So great direction from Tarantino. Great, just great setup of the whole thing that if you pay attention to, especially once you now know everything of the events and you can go back and look at it, you go, oh shit, yeah, that was there right in front of me the whole fucking time, which is what I love about his movies and, and movies like that in general is when it's there in front of you, but it's so subtle. They don't try to fucking hammer it at you. They just... Let you watch it and, and catch the genius of what they're doing. Yeah, I think the Netflix version shows a little bit more where it does. Yes. Joe, Gage, Joe Gage has got a gun on him like the whole time and he's doing that. Get out of the goddamn way. You know, like he's talking, you know, yeah. to himself and that. And then I didn't pick up on it. It's probably till about the second or third time. But like you start noticing she's so nonchalant about her little things that she does. I mean, mm-hmm. how is she hiding that enthusiasm of what could be happening here? You know, and she hides it so well and just sits there and she doesn't have that that crazy look on her face, that smile through all of it. And it's really, you know, like it'd be hard to hold all that in where, but she like instantly, like, like you said, she goes over and blocks it. And then she drops that fucking line about the bananas, but just, it, I shouldn't laugh at it, but I do every time I watch the movie, you know, like. Well, also, I think Ruth makes a point about talking about won't have the leathery patience that Daisy has. Like he knows Daisy can outlast, outwit, out whatever. She, you know, she's not going to jump. Yeah, she's a fucking true snake in the grass. She will wait until the moment is exactly right, and then she will strike. And that's why when we get to the coffee pot thing in a little bit, that's why she has no spatial expression really when that happens. Like, she's just really, she is, as he said, a duplicitous bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Now, those of you who did listen to our Reservoir Dogs anniversary special, I thank you. But Mr. Petros, I believe even Steven, and my friend here, Sean, did not like Roth's accent well, the two our two English friends didn't buy his American accent in that movie, and the dumb ears of myself and Sean didn't, didn't even know he was fucking English when we first saw him. But not many of them liked his accent in this. However, I think he is delicious as Mulberry. He oversells this English accent on purpose. He is totally playing into the belief that if you hear an English accent, then it was something that was not to be feared. Over time here in America, we have used the English accent as the villain. So whenever we hear it sometimes, we think villain. However, he is overselling the fact that he is English. Overselling it. Once events take place where he gets shot and he's sitting in the chair, that oversell is gone. It's completely gone from the way he talks. If you pay attention to it again. So he's overselling it on purpose to play this new character of Mowbray as opposed to being English Pete Hickox, who he really is once we lose the ruse and everyone knows who everyone is and everyone's shot and all this stuff's going on. He drops it. So you don't like it, but it's intentional. He is selling this new accent, this over the top of his own English accent as a way to try to keep people off the trail of him possibly being in with Daisy Dombrew. Because why would an Englishman who talks like that be a part of a notorious 
Serious Gang. So, for those of you who don't like the accent, that is probably why, because you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to think he's a part of the gang. You're supposed to think when you first meet him, he's just this fucking blimey, limey in this fucking place who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't mind the accent. Um, I agree with you that even Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs, like, he's great in it. I don't even really notice the little nuances that they were bringing up this movie it's the the overacting i think that you're bringing up where he's trying to jump into and all the by the bar like i can't <laughs> like i can't but i love that because i think it's just as funny because he's going to Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah like it just it, that kind of breaks up my you know when i'm watching it it disrupts what i'm thinking about because it's so over the top and i think that's the only part i don't like about it <laughs> again i i totally with you but the more i watch it the more i actually like how ridiculous he is like how ridiculous he's gone <laughs> i was just he gets so fucking high that i'm surprised his does, voice yes. doesn't crack with that by the Please doesn't. It's like, I know Americans are not to let something like a truce <laughs> get in the way, <laughs> but <laughs> the fireplace is Atlanta, Georgia, and the bar will be. And he takes a moment. Philadelphia, like it's Philadelphia. almost like he came to us like a, a light bulb goes like Philadelphia, like he remembered a town <laughs> in America. Uh, I, I don't know. The more from that from this moment on, you're gonna go back and watch. I think you're gonna have a little bit more joy when you hear him do these fucking. You're gonna be laughing about me doing that. I am. I'm gonna think like by the bar. Philadelphia. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, God, I love him. Tim Roth is so great. To uh, back up your theory about Mannix being sheriff, when he walks in and finds out that that's the hangman, he knows the Lance Lawson, yes, which is does. the owner of Video Archives. Like He knew right who it is, what it was for. It kind of backs up his story a little bit. Yes, agreed. Now that I think about agreed. it. Agreed. Now, QT and his DP sense, I want to say, was it? Jackie, no, since uh, since Kill Bill. I think he joined on Kill Bill. And he also, ironically, was the DP of Natural Born Killers. Richardson, they do an amazing job shooting in the 70 millimeter, but making this place look fucking freezing, which it was. A lot of times that set was 30 degrees Fahrenheit or negative one degrees Celsius. So I do have some info about that. Like, I think I shared it with you at one point. I went and I toured the house that they filmed the ring at. Mm -hmm. And I got to go up into the loft where, because it's still there and everything. Um, I became friends with the owner. He works for Microsoft. Yeah. Jesse Stippick, if you're listening, hi. The pictures I took were the first ones that anybody had released in like 15 years of these locations. And I ended up becoming friends with Michael Deersing, who is the guy that built the loft. And he built the, the ring cabin where I've been up here where I live. I started looking at his IMDb page and he did the sets for Hateful Eight. And I was like, no shit. Like, I got a hundred questions. Through me talking to him, the first thing I found out was that they built this set twice. They built it in Wyoming out in the freezing cold and they filmed the entire movie there. And then they rebuilt the entire set back at one of the studios in Hollywood. And then they refilmed everything. So he had the choice of the two different, you know, when editing Locations, it had to yeah. have been just a fucking nightmare. But so you did have both. A lot of people, I don't think, I don't think that's ever I got that right from some the guy that did it. So yeah. I've never read it anywhere else, but that's what Michael Deersing told me. And he's pretty fucking famous for working on sets. So Well, I think they did an amazing job of making it look cool. Like 
I know this is kind of uh, Tarantino's, the way he was able to kind of cope with what the thing meant to him and what the thing was. I felt colder watching this movie than I do watching the thing. Obviously, when they're outside, that's a different story. But when they're inside, the snow's always coming through. Yeah. It just seems fucking cold the whole fucking time. And, you know, like you said, we don't know if it's the one in Wyoming or if it's the one on the set. But either way, it always looks cold. And thing is in Antarctica. Well, you know, obviously where it's supposed to be filmed. And I feel colder on this set than I do when I watch the thing. Except, of course, when I said we go outside when we know it's sub-zero temperatures. But when they're inside, it fucking seems freezing. It seems like it's the absolute worst cold ever. I can feel it in my, I can feel my toes not being able to be felt. My hands get tight. You know, it's, they did a great job of that whole thing. The set decoration on this is just fucking phenomenal. Every little, you know, you look when you watch it, it's just like, holy shit. And then they had to take like pictures of, like he, like he had said, they took pictures of everything and everything had to be absolutely perfect. And there was people that were in charge of that. Because if anything was out of place and he would have noticed it, he would have freaked the fuck out is what. Well, the uh, here's an ironic thing. Tarantino doesn't usually build sets. He's more of a practical person. He likes finding actual locations. So the fact that they built this set, they did a gorgeous job of it. Absolutely phenomenal job with this motherfucking set. You can see every fucking bullet hole, you know, as soon yes. as the sun is out, like there's yes. bullet holes and shit. And it's just, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um imperfections in the wood outside that stay yep. there through the whole movie and especially when he walks over by the coffee like you were talking about and she's turning around you look like there's just shit hanging and yep. well he walks over to joe gage it looks like these meat hooks and chains are hanging down yeah. like like there's no rhyme or reason uh when you start to look when um warren's interrogating everybody you can see up above there's like a bunch of bags and shit that have been stored up top like it's so much comes to light as the more you watch the film and you stop looking at the characters and start looking around the set you're like wow like the set dressing is it's fucking top notch i think he just decided you know what we are going to have to build a set for this and if we're going to do it like if this is the only location we're at pretty much through the whole movie like we're going to fucking go gangbusters on it and they did. Well, also, where's he going to find a place like that that exists anymore? You know, like, they're you're just, not. like, even if you're going to go out to Wyoming, these cabins are going to be more modern. They're not going to have this just giant Insulation. open floor plan anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Pioneers didn't figure out isolation no, until, no. like, what, 1901? <laughs> Fucking put ram skin and shit between your shingles. Well, talking about something your dad had said where he, they talk too much. In my opinion, having watched this numerous times, this is his best script where it comes to dialogue. Conversation, dialogue, nothing beats it because it goes from one great conversation to the next and it all flows and feels legitimate. I don't feel like they're trying to shoehorn in something just to get a point across. You know, we're not we're not doing this dialogue just so we can help push the story along. It's all flowing. It all flows beautifully. The way that it was directed, the way that the actors deliver it, it just fucking flows gorgeously. I know he won his two writing for Pulp Fiction and Django, but I, I really believe he could have should have won for this one too. I really believe this should have been nominated for it because his dialogue in this is just mwah, fucking probably the best. I think he would have if he wouldn't have went to the protest that he did. That's ridiculous. The movie got nailed pretty hard in the press because he was at some anti-police protest before everybody got pissed at the police in this country a couple of years before. And I honestly yeah, he showed up because he was tired of cops shooting black people in New York City. Yeah, you know, yeah. and he showed up. How at the dare protest. he? And then, How dare he? That's against what he talks about. Every police officer in the United States banded together and didn't go see this movie. They ripped it apart online. And I'm not, my degrees in law enforcement. I, I know cops. Like, yeah, if you fuck with one of them, you're fucking with all of them. <laughs> Ask Chris Dormer about that one. But well, yeah. My my statement on that, having been a military policeman in the military, is 
you know what? How about you start policing yourselves? Exactly. Okay. You you want you want us to back you? How about you stop shooting the people you're supposed to protect? How about that? Yeah, and like instantly they're like, well, he's talking about you know brutality, and here he's cutting off cops' ears. I remember the tweets and stuff, and that that impacted this movie in the theater. Really, like, look at how much money it made. It didn't make dick, you know, in theater compared to what Django did. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that that had something to do with it too. I think the Academy stayed away from this movie as much as they could because of that. So they're lost. Exactly. But this is still, in my opinion, one of the best. The conversations in the first three chapters of the film are amazing. And not one of them in these first three aren't antagonistic in feeling. You know, I mean, there's a couple where, you know, where most of them are like, God damn it. Like, oh, they're borderline almost fist fights at the end of them. They get so close. Like, he builds so much tension and so much dread and so much like, you just don't know who's going to fucking hit someone first. You know what I mean? He's like, yep. someone's going to get shot here. We just don't know which one's going to trigger the other person. And then we also get to meet Bruce fucking Dern. <laughs> he just has a way of playing a piece of shit racist son of a bitch that just rings true. And I don't not saying Bruce Dern is that way at all, but my God. His small moment as the leader of the Krukin farm in Django, whew, that's tough. But this one, General Sandy Smithers. Wow. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. Nor the predication. When he talks about the horse and, and that battle of Baton Rouge, you're like, this motherfucker. Well, right it's, oh, it's, when he cuts, it's when he cuts Mannix off. Cat Mannix. You know, like yes. the, the whole, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I love the telephone game they play with Mannix yeah. in the middle. Again, like you said, comic genius. Smithers is saying some horrible shit. Yeah. And he goes, ooh, this is interesting. And then he says it to Warren, and Warren, you tell that crack, goes, oh, okay. It's just, yep. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But <laughs> it's, it all works, and it's very authentic. Beautiful. It's authentic. Oh, absolutely. I guarantee yes. you, I, none of us, I doubt there's anyone alive that lived back then, but they talked like that. In my head. <laughs> <laughs> so then it's weird because that is the moment where we start to pull more away from being angry with Chris Mannix, even though he still is a bit of a turd throughout the film, but we really start to go, ooh, I don't like General Smithers at all. You know what I mean? Like You're like, oh, I mm. this motherfucker. Like, I'm like, mm, yeah. this old and man, this Mannix, old man needs to take it. Mannix is the shit stir through the whole movie. Oh, like, yeah, possibly. And, um, and Bruce Dern, like, it's hard to get over. I mean, I love the burbs. And you see him, and it's just like, yes, I'm so happy he's in something else. And I'm starting to watch these old westerns and stuff where he's in it, you know, like as a young man and shit. So it's like, you know, and then he was so great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, he doesn't get enough yes. cool role, roles. Not everybody needs a stuntman. <laughs> Can't you see I'm fucking blind? <laughs> he's, no, he is just pure... Pure joy and pure genius in everything he's in with Tarantino. Yep. The other part of this movie, and then once we get all this little introduction of hateful, <laughs> we're all angry. Now we've separated from to Philadelphia. <laughs> we have the moment of them standing around the fire. Now, there's two people. John Ruth, when he walks in, he has an idea something might be up, but he doesn't know what. That's why he comes in all big and boys like, look, I know some, some of you here probably are going to try to stop me, but I'm going to let you know that's not going to fucking go well for you. So he comes in all cock of the wood. It's Warren who instantly, because Warren's the only person who knows and has been to Minnie's haberdashery of these people in there. He knows instantly something is not right. I mean, he knows with Bob. Yep. But he that's just something the entire time it's the back of his fucking head is scratching. He knows something's rotten in Denmark, as I say. There's something wrong here immediately. Yeah, when he gets out and he's questioning Bob out in the, the stable, he almost goes yeah. Hans he goes Hans Landa a little bit. Yes. Where he knows there's something up and he's asking him questions that are probing to see if the guy's gonna fuck up. And thank God Bob saw like her rolling cigarettes, otherwise he'd have been busted right there. Yeah. You know, so Bob is also great. 
I love Bob. Yep, I haven't seen him. What can I say? I'm a lazy, laissez-faire about the hats. I've, <laughs> I and I've never that. seen him in anything else that I've liked him in. Do you remember Cher? Except, oh, really? oh. except for this. So so good in this. Oh, yep. my God. He's just... Uh, and I'm not making fun. I'm not trying to be, you know, making fun of uh, Hispanics at all. It's just how he talks in the film. I just love his... Let's lazy fan about the hats. I just love how he just the way his voice rises and the way he is. Of all just, the people, just he buys into shot. His, yes. And he goes, who, who broke the trigger? Just put a nail in the shot. Of all the people in here, he's the one playing the best. Like he's the one you're almost like, I don't think he is in no. on this. He's plucking the chick. Like he is literally Wayne turned Tiano. into yes. He's turned into this character that he's supposed to be the house the, the the housekeeper and stuff like that. Like he just really turns into it, and you're like, God damn. Bob really sells it. So I, I love Bob. He's his moments are are great. He also doesn't shoot Smithers and he's like, he had something, you know, and the, the, the leader of the gang is like, what? Like, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. It's like, what are you leading us now? <laughs> okay. I'll look into it while you're out dealing with the other shit, you know? And like I said, this is all great scene work, but we get the dinner table and part of the dinner table about to talk about makes it to my intro every time. And it's the, you only need to hang mean bastards, but mean bastards, you need to hang. And now, for those of you who don't know, that is a quote which references Sonny Chiba from the Street Fighter in 1974, which also is referenced in True Romance. So, Mr. Tarantino making his nod back to the great and now unfortunately late Sonny Chiba or Hattori motherfucking Hanzo, the greatest sword maker ever. I just love how he constantly is bringing back stuff and it just... As a fan, you just constantly love those little, as as they're called in a lot of the other ones, Easter eggs. But there's so many great Easter eggs that he has for his fans. Or just, honestly, just for himself. You know, let's pretend. He's not doing it for me and you. He's doing it because he's Tarantino. He loves these people. And if he gets a moment to pay homage to them in any way he can, and it fits, he fucking does it. And then well, us as fans who fall in love with him go, oh, fuck, that's awesome. You know? Well, it's like, it's like naming the, the old sheriff of Red Rock, Lance Lawson. It's his old yes. boss from, and the scene in Kill Bill where um, you find out that her name is Beatrix Kiddo. All those names are people that worked on the film or friends of his that he threw in there just as fucking, you know, little, I mean, he's constantly. Well, as I said in the thing, Beatrix comes from someone that Uma worked with. And Kiddo was Tarantino's reference to what he calls, talks to women who he likes. And not in like a romantic thing, but like he always says, hey, Kiddo. So that's where those two married right. up. Yes, that was that was in my Bible study that you clearly didn't listen to. Thanks, Sean. Big fan he is of the podcast. I, Big dude, fucking fan. You got like a fucking year of content on there. I can't remember. <laughs> I know. I do. I do. And I know. Sometimes here, I forget what I've said. For anybody listening, you're not seeing him hit mute and cough his ass off every like 30 seconds. Hey, but I'm being polite about it because I also don't want to cut it out in my fucking thing because it's fucking, it's fucking, I'm just, it's, an, it's, it's awful. something else because I'll be talking and I look over and he just, yeah, like, like he's fucking been drinking the coffee at Minnie's. Well, I, I really, I, I'm about to go OB on here. I might just spit out blood and fucking go down. Jesus Christ. Also, this table, we then get moved along by Mr. Chris Mannix, where Chris Mannix has realized that the black man in the stable has a Lincoln letter and Chris Mannix knows a little bit about the war and what happened with Warren and basically outs Warren as being a liar and then we get that great moment from him and Ruth and Ruth is just now completely upset and then does what all upset white people do say something racist and stupid but Warren then has an opportunity because in the prior scene Mannix says the only time white people are safe is when black people are scared and then Warren flips this and he says the only time black people are safe are when white people are at ease. And this had the, the effect he needed for him to like him because he doesn't really like Warren because he's black. 
He likes Warren because he's a fan of Lincoln, and Lincoln accepts Warren. So if Lincoln likes Warren, then he needs to like Warren. So real, I mean, it's a, there's a lot being said in this in this movie that, and in these conversations that just seem like set dressing when we're watching it. But in reality, man, there's a lot of context and stuff that he is saying without, like I said, it's not, and I, I love Spike Lee, but it's not a Spike Lee film where it's just, it's in your face and it just shoved at you. This movie just, he just drips it into you and you're just in your subconscious going, oh, fuck. Like he makes so many great points, so many things, and he lets his characters do it in a realistic, you know, authentic way as opposed to it just being like, you know, someone up there giving a speech about how blacks and whites are different kind of thing, you know? And I, I just love how he just is able to do in these great moments. And then <laughs> we have this beautiful moment and all of a sudden he gets up and he's going to go over and talk to General Smithers. And all of a sudden you're like, is this General suddenly becoming soft? These two men are now going to talk about the battle they were at? Like all of a sudden, he like disarms him about his Atlanta boy, Athens girl, you know, like, he's yeah, like, oh, what the fuck's going to happen? And you're just like, oh. This is going to be a nice moment. Once again, Tarantino pulls the rug out from under us and sets us up for my favorite scene, maybe, in this film. Uh, when we find out what happens to Charles Smithers, Sandy Smithers' son, who came up looking for Marcos Warren, who was well-known for the events that we were talked about in Stagecoach with Chris Mannix. And at one point, there was a lot of money on his head. So a lot of white boys, a lot of crackers came uh, calling to Mr. Warren, and they all met their demise at his guns. And one of them was Mr. Charles Smithers, which I will be covering in the Bible study in depth because why not? What's more fun than talking about how a white piece of shit meets his demise and humiliation at the hands of one of the greatest actors of all time, Mr. Samuel L. Jackson as Marcus Warren. But I love that moment takes us all out of the film like that. When I was sitting there on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, because that's when this <laughs> came out, and I'm watching this because I go, you know, when they're out, it doesn't matter. Yep. I don't care what day they release. Me, I'm me going. too. Roadshow. Like Christmas Day is like, okay, great. I had my kid. We know we open the presents. Yeah. But after, once the presents are done and wrapping, I have to go to like a dinner with family. But at that dinner at seven o'clock, nine o'clock, I'm going to this film and I already know. And I'm, and I'm just like, can't wait. I'm antsy the whole fucking day when he releases one on Christmas. I could not wait. And I'm sitting in the theater Christmas Day and all of a sudden this scene comes on and I'm just like, this is the best day of my life. I just absolutely love where Tarantino took it, where he just took it. Because Southern men, <laughs> racists, do not want what happens to Mr. Charles Smithers to happen. It's their greatest fear for some reason. It's, it's a very irrational fear. But Tarantino knew it, knows it, and fucking absolutely delivers with it. And ah. Uh, well, oh. The cool thing about this scene is you don't know if it actually happened. He could have just true. Fucking, we don't know how much of it is true and how he much he could have just not. Wrote, wrote up. Marquez got the fucking drop on him, shot him four times, went through his shit, found and read a letter. You know, and found out that it's who who it is, and then uh, the whole thing is to elicit a response to get him to pull that fucking gun. Yes. And what great facial expressions Bruce Dern has. Oh, he's just like oh. like you're telling him the worst fucking and, story. And then he's like. Like he has to breathe out, like he can't handle. Like it's just, Which, I don't know what. He's just so brilliant. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna disagree with you though, and it's my oh. least favorite scene in the movie. Really? Why is because that? Because yes, up to this point, they're all hateful motherfuckers, and the mm -hmm. only one that you like, John Ruth, is doing his best to make you hate him, pretty much with everything. Marcus is the only one, like, and I think we've talked about before that when he writes a character for Samuel Jackson, he's always the smartest guy in the room. So you know that he's figured it out. You think he's the hero of the film and you like him. And then you, you just found out that he's a fucking liar. He's killed yes. numerous people in the war. And now 
he's a fucking rapist as well. And it's just like that his character arc is the exact opposite of Mannix. You know what I'm saying? And I, I see that, what you're saying. When I watched it, I was just like, son of a bitch. Like, okay, so he's and it put what it what it's doing is putting doubt in your mind about who he is and why he's there. It's it's another, you know, one of those layers that you're, you keep talking about that Tarantino put in there to put doubt because everyone was sitting there like I was going, there's no fucking way that he's the guy. And then this puts all that doubt that he could be the guy. I, I saw it differently. I saw it as I saw it as his way of getting back anyways. Like I had no idea yeah. Charles Smithers was going to be there when they show no. no idea. No. When he sees him, he's fucking surprised. And he wanted to but shoot him But after earlier. all the stuff. I think one of the reasons he did it is Mannix has now disarmed him by telling the story's fake. So now the only person he had on his side was John Ruth. So John Ruth, they made a deal. They were gonna watch shows back. Once he realizes John Ruth realizes that he can't he doesn't even trust him, now Warren is left to his own like he's back by himself. Like he has no one on his side. The only way to switch that is to show everyone how fucking serious he is and that you don't want to mess with him. And what better way to do that than to tell this story, kill this man as quick as he did, and now put everyone like, do you want to take on me? Don't, just because I wrote this letter, I was trying to disarm you to like me, but if I have to go another route, I will gladly roll with all of you because we're not in the war anymore. Yeah. If you want to draw, we'll draw. You know what I mean? I think that was part of it. He was taking his power back. At least that's how I, how I saw it because Mannix had stripped him of it. And now the room was starting to lean towards Mannix and he's like, the only way to take this back is to take out one Mannix's hero, but to do this and to show everybody how quick and what I'm willing to do. And now to tell the actual story of me, because they everyone heard that there had been people, you know, that he had a price on his head. Now I was telling everybody a lot of crackers have come up this mountain looking for, for gold, and all they found was me and my guns. And he wanted to make sure that, that this wasn't just folklore. This is real. I'm real. Like you may have heard my yeah. stories, but I'm the real fucking kind of like Django. I'm the real fucking deal. If you want to roll, just know who you're going against. And I think that was part of why he did it. But at least that's how I interpret it. But Again, like I said, it's open interpretation, except Jingle was not killed by Marcus. And I don't remember if um, the scene where he they take the gun from Joe Gage was before or after this, but like it was before this. Kind of see that he is like he can fucking handle himself the way he sneaks up with that knife and just gets it. Oh, yeah. And because Ruth didn't even wave him over, he just did it on his own. Like he just, he was up quick. Yep. And it's, yeah, so, like, you know that this is not someone to be fucked with. And I think Mannix picked up on that in the stagecoach where instantly, as soon as that gun came out, he's like, oh, shit, the stories were true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got me talking politics. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, you, you, know, you like, got me yeah. talking politics. Yep. <laughs> fucking great. I'm going to go stand uh, by the bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, it takes one hour and 34 minutes before Anyone is killed in this film, which up until then is quite unusual for a Tarantino film. Obviously, it goes longer when we get to Once Upon a Time. But until that point, because obviously this comes out three and a half years before, this movie has the longest stretch before yeah. anyone finds their demise. And he got it. I just I finished the script preparing for this. He got it so much worse than the original script. I was just going to say, yes, he oh my God. does. And he gets blown into the fucking fireplace. Yep. He's on fire. And the only reason that uh, Warren lets them put him out is so he doesn't catch the haberdashery on fire. When he Warren yells, let him burn. Let him burn. And I think that because of who was cast as it and everything, I think that's why they didn't do it. But Or yeah. budgetary reasons or fucking yes. damaging the fucking set that they built. <laughs> or maybe he was talking to Robert Rodriguez and Rodriguez said, you know, one of the first days of shooting uh, from Dust of Dawn, you remember when we blew up the outside and the whole fucking thing caught fire? Remember that day? He goes, yeah. maybe you don't want to do that too. You know, so 
But yes, Mr. <laughs> Mr. General Smithers gets it really fucking bad in the original script. And, you know, but the great Bruce Dern, he's on screen for only a short amount of time, but every time he is on screen in his movies, they're just fucking perfection. He's so great. And playing fucking chess with Sweet Dave, the yay whooping shit. <laughs> yeah. Really... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that takes us to chapter four. Domergoo's got a secret. And I love Tarantino's voiceover in that. <laughs> Black dicks and white mouse it's just oh he just hammers it home he just hammers it home adam and he frames this beautifully because he only has three people in the frame when we show warren talking we've got smithers and ob sitting there and then obviously we see a hand to the coffee pot which once again the hand putting the poison in the coffee pot is actually quentin tarantino's hands and the close-ups of bob playing piano is actually tarantino's hands so he likes getting his hands and things he's choking out fucking actresses and inglorious bastards he just likes to get his hands into the film so he, it's this hitchcock thing it is it's better than him sometimes acting and actually his voiceover work in this is actually pretty decent yeah you know, like he it really works well he always hides himself i think the original even like the original theatrical poster for once upon a time in hollywood he's hidden in it if you look, there's a little spot where he's in it. So, Well, I'm sure you've listened to Django by now, or if you haven't, but one of my favorite moments is he's the guy with the bag over his head, and he's yep. like, well, oh, maybe yeah. this time we don't wear bags. Maybe next time. Like, he is great when he's the bagged man. You don't see his face. He leans into his Tennessee roots, and he's fantastic in it. That scene is funnier than The Door is a Whore, by the way. Just uh, <laughs> the KKK scene. <laughs> it is. But because The Door is not supposed to be fun. Like, we're making fun of the KKK intentionally. This door has, we're just fucking going out of door. And it's just great because we can't close it, and everyone's yelling, and it's just, just fucking I want to edit them together. Nobody brought any extra doors. <laughs> I know. No, no, brought extra bags. And this door is a whore. <laughs> I should just get the whole thing of all the crazy. <laughs> Who gives a shit if we can't see? Can a horse see? That's all that matters. That's the goddamn raid. <laughs> the shit. The shit fire needs to make a comeback. <laughs> oh man. So we don't know who. Poison the coffee pot. We know who didn't. We know Warren and we know Smithers didn't. And we for sure know it's probably not Ruth or Domergu because they're all sitting there. And we know it's not OB, but there are still four others around or three others around. And we just don't know who it is. And I love that. Now that we're just kind of like, oh, all right, this is going to be interesting. This leads to one of the greatest faux pas in film history and also one of the coolest scenes that they shoot in this film. And that's Daisy Dimergoo, played by, as we said, the amazing Jennifer Jason Lee, who should have won the Best Supporting Actress in this film. She is playing a song called Jim Jones at Botany Bay on a highly valued antique from the 1870s on loan from the Martin Guitar Museum and worth somewhere around $40,000. The irony of this is that guitar is actually around the exact time that this movie is supposed to be taking place. At the end of the song... The script calls for Mr. John the Hangman Ruth to grab the guitar and smash the pieces. There were six replicas built for this shoot, and they were supposed to be used in substitute for the real instrument when he smashes them. But due to some kind of big-time miscommunication, Kurt Russell was not informed, and he destroys the original guitar before anyone can stop him, which is why Jennifer Jason Lee's shocked reaction is actual and genuine and was used in the release of the film. Because of this, the Martin Guitar Museum subsequently announced that they would never again loan guitars to any film shoots for any reason. So the guitar you see being smashed in the film is a $40,000 1870 guitar that will never see the light of day again, but gets the greatest reaction from an actress in film ever. She crushes it in that scene because not only is she singing it, but she tunes that shit by ear, which I was a musician for yeah, years. Yeah, she does. My whole opinion of her and the whole gang is that, you know, and I think anybody that watches it is that they're just a bunch of dumb rednecks from up in the woods that are 
murdering and killing and taking what's not theirs and everything. And all of a sudden, when you see Jody later on and you find out that they're really not that way and that she's kind of playing it that way, that was the dead giveaway that she's really not, to me, when I was watching it, that she's not who you think she is because the way that she just grabs that guitar and starts tuning it by ear and everything, I'm not saying she's had lessons because obviously they didn't have such a thing back then or, you know, there's more to her than what you're seeing. And it's that little subtlety things that he threw in that guitar. She could have just picked it up, started playing. He threw that in there for a reason. Well, plus the song, because while she's playing, he eventually drinks the coffee, which is what we're all sitting there tensely watching to see who's going to do it. And what we also don't notice from chapter three is they must swing that coffee pot around a hundred times. Like they're putting it in our face so much. We talk about coffee. Who made this coffee? Mexican? It it smells like you soaked the socks. And like we go through this coffee thing forever without realizing it's going to be something that really is a game changer when we poison the coffee. Now we stand around, we're watching who's going to drink it. They fill their cups. A couple guys don't drink just yet. We're all like, oh, who's going to drink it? When you first saw the movie, did you think that John Ruth was going to meet his demise at the hands of this coffee pot? Did you actually think that he, this is how he was going to go? No. Like, it's Kurt, it's Kurt fucking Russell. Like, yes, you think he's making it to the end, right? You think you he's going to make it to the end. Yeah, I would think you'd have a better chance of Tarantino actually dying while he's filming the movie than killing Kurt Russell <laughs> on screen again. Yes. You know, he's already yes. done it once. So, I'm, you know... Yeah, It had a Vince Vega feel to it when he dies. Except in Pulp Fiction, he makes a comeback because it's out of sequence. Yeah. But it's like when Bruce Willis shoots him, he comes out of the bathroom, you're like, oh, he's not going to shoot Vince. It's not going to die. And then he does. You're like, what the yep. fuck? It's the same feeling. I was like, wait a minute. Is he going to die from the coffee? And you're like, because then he drinks it. And then we're all sitting there waiting and going, all right, so he and OB have drank the coffee. And we're sitting there, and even Daisy's like waiting, and then all of a sudden he just starts spitting out blood, and you're like, oh, fuck. Great gag. Great blood gags. Oh, fantastic. I mean, that whole moment is chaos. It's beautifully played. Russell plays it amazingly. Mr. Parks plays it amazingly. And obviously Jennifer Jason Lee, the way she is just fucking laughing. And then he splo- you know, explodes in her face. And it's just... And oh. she's laughing through that. Yes, laughing through that. It's just, oh my her, God. Her laugh in this movie when he throws that fucking stew and hits her, it, it makes... It yes, cracks me the yes. fuck up. Every, you skipped over that part and I... Well, because, I mean, because what she said... Talk yeah. You talk that sad. Right, and then she keeps going. That was so... Good one, Warren. So <laughs> fucking... Yeah, so her good. laughing... Cracks me the fuck up, and then she's laughing. I mean, he punches her teeth out. He knocks her front two teeth yeah. out, and she still laughs and spits them out, and then yep. he still throws well, them Well, and she face. said, she goes, I'll be there laughing. Yes. You know, I, I think she says that at one point before this happens, when, you you know, I'll be there laughing, and she is. He's so, so great amazing. in this. But, as you said, unfortunately, poor OB, the nicest character in the film, gets the biggest fucking shaft. He's the one who has to go throw out the fucking guns in the toilet, almost dies. Sure. <laughs> There's a whore. He has to go outside and help bring the bodies out again because he draws the wrong stick. And then he dies for no fucking reason, drinking the fucking coffee. Poor OB. Want some stew, OB? No, just yeah, I know. <laughs> so you, need get, you need to get warm. <laughs> That's what I tell you. Bob is great. Like, Bob is totally playing this. Like, he is basically the guy running the Minnie's Haberdashery the whole time. He, he plays it well. Until you watch the flashback scene and you find out that that's the most diabolical, fast-drawing son of a bitch in the whole in Minnie's Haberdashery. Yes. But, and he is the one who ruins the door, which is why it's great. Do you break this door? I just put a nail on the wall. And if you, <laughs> when they're doing that, he fucking hits his head on that thing on the wall. Like, God damn it, yes. motherfucker. Like, and they, they left it in there. It's like a stormtrooper moment. <laughs> Oh, Oh, but after all this craziness, we then have Warren. He fires some gunshots, and everyone's up against the wall. Now Warren's going to interrogate Bob because Bob's the first person. He's going to find out who just poisoned the coffee, but he also knows that other stuff has happened. Something else has happened that's afoot besides poison of this coffee. Minnie and Sweet Dave are not on some mountainside. 
They're dead somewhere, and he knows this. He's just got to figure out how much Bob has in it. And Quentin Tarantino makes a great statement about the ignorance of people when it comes to bigotry and racism when Warren tells Bob that many hated Mexicans. She's a former slave who was hated by whites because of her race, and now here she is harboring feelings of hatreds towards another race. Just a nice mirror turned on America that racism in all forms is just stupid and ignorant. That one person could actually be hated by somebody and then still harbors same kind of resentment and hatements towards another race. That's not even the one that's hating you. That's a different race. Just shows how ignorant and dumb it truly is. However, if it wasn't for the fact that she hated Mexicans, he never would have had his dander up in the first place that Bob was out of place. Now, I always knew Warren was going to kill Bob from the stable. I was like, Warren's going to kill Bob. Like, I was just like, this is happening. Like He may not kill Mannix. He's killing fucking Bob. I just knew it. But did you see it coming the way it comes? Did you see him blowing away fucking Bob's face? Like, he blows his face clean off another great effect. Did you he see off, that coming? He ate off Hitler, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably like, yeah. two measly bullets, and that's the story of Bob. Yeah, well, the way that he goes about it, he goes full Hans Landa again. You know, yes. like he goes, you know, like he he's built this whole thing up in his head. I mean, like we said, he knew that there was something up and he knew that that's the first threat of it. And if he kills him, what's going to happen yep. with the other two? Yeah, I didn't see that coming like the way that it did, because all of a sudden he just pulls the gun out. And I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah. And then there's your violence that everybody's been waiting for. Yeah. The real, real big violence. Yep. And then he threatens to pour the coffee down this bitch's throat. And then, obviously, we do the crane down. So we now know that there's someone in the basement. But when the first time I saw it, I did not expect Warren to get shot. Like, I did not yeah. see that. I mean, obviously, when we go down, we go, all right, this can happen. But I honestly didn't see him getting shot in the dick. I didn't see his balls getting shot off. I had forgotten about the Channing Tatum in the credits. Completely. Yes, That's how engrossed I, I was in the movie. Like, yeah. you forget. Like, what the yep. fuck is he going to do in this movie? And then you forget about yep. it. When this came out, like, he, he was still, you know, like, he, I still look at him like he's a crazy son of a bitch. You know, like. Yeah, if you're seeing 21 Jump Street and everything like, you know, like <laughs> that's my opinion of him. Like, you know, and then he plays this and it's like, holy shit. Like he's yeah. got some depth to him that you don't really yep. get to see very often. So and that I mean, when he gets shot in the balls, that opens fire and everybody. Everyone's getting shot. Except for, I ain't got no gun. <laughs> I love that slow-mo. Sure. <laughs> Good old Gage. Uh, but everyone in the Hateful Eight, every one of the Hateful Eight, the people who are named the Hateful Eight, Warren, Ruth, Domergood, Mannix, Bob, Mulberry, Gage, and General Smithers, they all get shot in this fucking film. In fact, they all eventually die. It's also a callback, if you notice, to our boy, Mr. Tim Roth, Mr. Mulberry. He gets shot in the gut where he's then bleeding out in a confined space with people all around him questioning his loyalty, just like his Mr. Orange character some 23 years prior when this movie comes out. So, poor Tim Roth. He gets his, he's finally back in a Tarantino film and he gets the same fucking treatment as he does in Reservoir Dogs almost. I just, I wish he would have held up the three fingers wrong or something while he was laying there. You know, there's three of them. And he, if the, that's the only way he could have tied it together even more, you know. <laughs> three whiskeys from Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> This leads us to Chapter 5, The Four Passengers. Now, despite the film's title and marketing, there are actually nine characters that share the cabin during the blizzard. Absent from the list of the eight in the film's marketing is obviously OB. And technically there are ten, if you count, as we just said, Mr. Channing Tatum's character, Jody, who's hiding under the floorboards. Tatum's character wasn't in any of the marketing trailers because Tarantino, Tatum, and the whole cast wanted to keep it secret. I think you've already answered this question. Did you like Channing in the role of Jody? Because... I personally thought he did a damn good job of it. Yeah. Um, 
And I have a question at the end of this for you about your opinion about it. Go ahead. I, I loved him in this character. I love the way that he showed up, did it, you know, the bushwhack and nut shooting son of a bitch, you know, like all the stuff. <laughs> the way he, and the way he, when he comes up, hey, dummy, you know, like it, it's so playful and yeah. everything. And yeah. teaching her French. Yeah. Like is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. And my wife and I will do that on occasion. You know, tell yeah. me my, just beat my ass is back. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I love him in this role, and I maybe like he. I think he needs to do another Tarantino movie. But um, yeah, the name thing, the Domergu versus Domingue, and yeah, Domingue. It, it keeps coming up. Like, there's three different pronunciations of it, and is it because John Ruth can't fucking get her name right based off the warrant he has, or what? Or is she married and we just don't know about it? Is it's she? The same name, you know I mean, like Domingue is different than Domergu. I mean, because he says it's the Domingue gang. I mean, yeah, it's just I don't know. I it's I it's, took it you know, the thing is that she never she never corrects him though either. She doesn't correct no. him with the last name, which is weird too. So I don't. It's hard to tell. Well, I'm not just talking about the way that Chris Mannix says it though, and you'll yeah. probably end up you'll end up editing this out. But I've been wondering it because as the more I watch it, like the the Jody D- Domingue Domergue, it's spelled exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, but it's that. But there's a, there's the N in there, Domingue. You know what I mean? Like there's something that's missing. So. Either either they're all saying it wrong, or are the people who have made the posters getting Darmagoo wrong and they made a Domingue? Are, yeah. they, are the people who name the gang and it just becomes the famous name because that's who it is? Is that the one that's wrong? You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of open interpretation. Like, why is one named one? Is she married? Is Darmagoo her married name? Who the fuck would marry her? Where is he? You know what I mean? Where is all this stuff going? Yeah, or did he just, is fucking John Ruth, like, you know, maybe he didn't even read that fucking letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he just he just knows what the yeah. PS is at the end. Can I see it? He didn't yeah. say, "Can I read it?" <laughs> yeah. So who knows? Like it was, it's just something that my brother and I have been discussing every time we watch. Like, is he just that fucking redneckish that he can't say it right because everybody else says it right? And then Mannix, of course, can't pronounce it right because yeah, he's the biggest redneck in the movie. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. I, I wanted to it was in my notes to ask you what you thought about. It's been it's been something that's rattled around for a while. I, I guess I always just assumed that it must be she is married at some, at some point and then that's why her last name's no longer Domingue. But the other thing is is she doesn't so here's the funny thing. She does not correct it either way. She doesn't correct anyone saying that it's not Domergu. And she's the one who says Domingue. You know what I mean? So that's like all this my but Everything we know about her, I don't really think she gives a fuck what True. they call her. Duplicitous bitch, as he says. So yeah. she's just gonna play wrong, play along. Yeah. Why, why keep correcting these? You know, these guys that yeah. just want to kill me. So yeah, it's just it's something that's always stuck in my head as I'm watching. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> but again, it's one of those things where you just you never know. That's the thing about a Tarantino movie. You just never know. You never know what the fuck's going on sometimes. Yeah. Now, if I'm honest, and I love her, I do. I think Zoe Bell's a great human being and an amazing stunt woman, obviously, and it's been a pretty good actress in most films. Not a huge fan of her in this role. I think she overacts as Six Horse Judy. I just think it's a Too little excitable. over the top. Yes. And look, I do love her. Like, she beat my ass without even blinking. Like, she is an amazing stunt woman, human being, everything. She just overdoes it in this film. She's a little over the top, you know, just a well, little too yeah. childlike she, and this and that. Like, I, innocent. Because when the, she comes back in in Once Upon a Time. Oh, I love that. As Kurt Russell's wife, she's phenomenal. And she's over in the that top. role. What you but, doing but in a good fucking uh, but, but but you know, but like she's great in it because like she should be 
she wants she doesn't like the guy. Thinks he's a fucking murdering wife murderer. He is. So all of that, <laughs> but she comes off this like like a like a kid. You know what I mean? Like she's in the wild west frontier and she's acting like a little child. You know what I mean? Like it's just I don't know. Just for me, it was just a little too over the top, especially given the circumstances of the movie we're watching. Yeah, I guess they. I guess he felt that he needed a character like that. Like I just want you to play, you know, childlike through the whole thing. And she could be friendly, but you know, like it's almost like she's like almost like she doesn't know she where the fuck she is. You know what I mean? Like you're in the fucking west. Yeah. Like. Come on, what you, what you, what's this running around like a little girl with pigtails? What the fuck are you doing? You're riding, you're driving, you're driving a stagecoach. You should be badass. You should be, hey, who? You know what I mean? Like, it's like okay, uh, but that, that's just me. It's just me. Like, it doesn't end the film for me. But I'm just like, uh, all right. I guess she's also going to see some old friends there, where you maybe they're getting a different side of her than you know we normally see. So true, true. So who knows? And this is the second straight film in a row that someone is killed and some candy is spilled on the floor. That became a thing, you know. We had it happen where the girl spills the jelly beans or whatever they are when the Mandingo fight happens, and he hits him with a hammer, and that poor woman is blown off the ladder by Rocksteady, Madam Rocksteady, <laughs> <laughs> by Tim Roth. Oh, so good. But this scene is really great. I mean, it obviously it suddenly goes. Now we know what, what you know, who's who, what's what, and where everything's going, and why it's all happening. But it was just like it's a great setup. I love how they, they build how everything happens, and it leads right up to them. Kicking the door open for the first time. And a fantastic way to end it. Door kicks open and in comes Ruth with Daisy and we kick back to the to the main part of the movie, which, which yep. I absolutely love how they edited that. And it takes us to the final chapter. Black Man, White Hell. Now, this was the original title for the Django sequel. It's going to be Django Unchained. I don't think it was going to say number two, but it was going to be Black Man in White Hell. So it didn't make it as the movie, but it made it for the final chapter. When we return to the present with this chapter, you can feel the fucking cold and pain coming through the screen. I don't know if they, you know, made the actors run around so the sweat would come off so we could see the sweat coming off in the cold or what. But they look cold and I can feel their pain. Like it is fever. Such oh yes, yes, exactly. It looks like they're having a fever. I can feel it. And they look like an, an immense amount of pain. And it's just so well done. Like, it's such a great job, a great setup. But, man, as soon as you come back to that, you're like, you automatically feel awful. You're like, oh, God, these guys are all fucked. I'm not sure how you felt when you saw it. But that's when we were watching. I was like, my God, this looks cold. My God, they look terrible. Like, I felt for them. I want them all just, you know, let's just put them all out of the misery right now. Because they look fucking miserable. And I feel miserable. I'm not even in this fucking film. I'll be honest with you. I did not see... Then blowing Jody's head off when he comes no. up. I did not see that. That was another Marvin moment. I did not see them shooting his head off at all. In the original script, if you've read it, he was supposed to be shot a couple of times, fall down the stairs, they close the door, and they let rats. him get eaten by the rats that have hidden down there to you know, take shelter from the storm. To, to steal from Tarantino, he does a really good job of disarming his audience through this movie where I don't remember what the hey, dummy. And like they're so playful, brother and sister. Yeah. Like, Holy shit. Yeah. He's like, like how you doing, dummy? Better than yeah, you're, you're kind of yeah. you're completely disarmed while watching it. You know, watch yep. you know them reuniting and everything because you holy shit. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and I, at that point, I'm already like upset because Mannix had gotten shot. And I'm like, you know, because you really start to like as soon as he grabs the when he gets the gun and come on over to this side, like you instantly you're like, okay, I can like him now. You know, yeah. he's not just a racist son of a bitch. He's supposed to be one of the good guys, but you keep waiting yeah. for him to turn and shoot, you know, yep. Warren through the whole thing. And then while they're laying there, some of the best shit, you know, back and forth yeah. between the two of them. Well, also prior to that, but he does build some tension where we don't know 
if Mannix is going to betray Warren or not. Like, I know yeah. he keeps telling him that he's going to listen to her out, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know because she is leaning into his racist side. She's leaning into his Southern allegiances. Yep. You know, everyone's just like leaning, look, well, we can let it go. You kill him. You're good to go. You can get out of here alive. Take some of our bodies. You know, so you just don't know. And even Warren realizes that he's fucked. Like, if Mannix turns, there's nothing he can do about it. He is just in rough shape. as a, He knows he's going to die anyways, but... This it could be turned, and these motherfuckers could get away with shit, and he just doesn't know. And Tarantino does a great job of us not knowing. And then once we have an idea that he's not going to shift, because they, because you know, he, he finally says, "You were going to try to poison my fucking coffee and let me die," just like Ob. That's when we go, "Okay, I think he's on her side." But then the motherfucker passes out. He goes, "I don't feel so good." And then you're like, "Oh fuck!" Warren's out of bullets. Doesn't have a gun. This bitch is trying to get to a gun. She's hacking off John Ruth's arm. Like, it is just like fucking nothing but tension as the audience is just sitting there. Just and fucking assholes pucker tight. Is Manis going to wake up? Is he dead? Is she going to get to the gun? Is she going to kill Warren? Like, you just don't know what's going to fucking happen. He does such a great job of building that last moment of tension that, like, when that first happened, did you, what, what did you think was going to happen? Because I remember sitting there the first time going, Oh, fuck. Like, because knowing Tarantino, she could get warned. Like, we, I mean, Ruth's already gone. We just blew up Jody's head. I didn't see that coming. Like, anything is in play at this moment in this film. You just go, this could end poorly for all of our heroes, and she could walk out of here. I remember the first time that we, I was like Bruce Dern when you're hearing the story about the dick. Like, I'm just like, oh, what's going to happen? You know, like, <laughs> did you go, <laughs> you didn't even know my boy like yeah i'm just <laughs> yeah i was like that like i didn't know what to expect because this whole movie has not the people that you think are going to make it through it haven't made it through it and it's he's throwing you off from your you know your normal mindset of movies where the good guy always wins and ends up yes you know and like i said on the reservoir dogs thing like the bad guys doing bad things to bad people you know yeah like it's 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 his thing and yeah, like he totally nails that home through this entire film and right up to the end where you're just like, you know, even the most likable people, you're like, are they going to fucking die? Yeah. And But I also knew she was going to get hers because there's no way he was going to let all of this go through all of it, you know? So Yeah. But well, I, I figured she was going to get get to Mannix and then Warren would be end up reloading or doing something. But yeah, that's what I thought. Well, I didn't expect them to do what they end up doing, which is you only have to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you must hang. And yep. so I did not foresee this. I should have. I mean, it's Tarantino. He didn't have him say that for nothing. And man, did you know, in an interview with fellow filmmaker Christopher Nolan, Tarantino revealed that to come to the eventual neck in a noose ending we see in the film, Tarantino wrote himself a private draft of the screenplay from Daisy's point of view. This man's got way too much time in his hand. So <laughs> he could acquaint himself enough with the character, thus justifying her dangling demise. So even Tarantino, for those of you who thought he just wanted to hang women, he went and wrote another draft of this film from Daisy's POV so that he knew how duplicitous she was so that she actually deserved the hanging at the end of the film. Or as Chris Mannix says, wasn't that a lovely dance? <laughs> He's a little crazy about that shit. Um, I had read a thing where he fired an actor because they couldn't tell the backstory of their character. Wouldn't surprise me. Yep, He, he wants is. you to know who you are and why you're there. Yep. And if you don't, then, I mean, yeah, he got rid of somebody. I don't I think it was on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is where I read that. But nobody has ever figured out who the fuck it is because it would have yeah. made, made news by now. Did you like the ending of it? Did you like them hanging her? Like, 
it felt right to me. Yeah, and the way that they did it, and then she's got those two snowshoes up behind her that they're yeah, like angels' the wings. wings. Yeah. Yep. And it's but it's a blood splattered angel. So yep. I mean, we all know where she's going if there's a heaven yep. and hell. But the way that it, it's framed and filmed, and yep. then the whole ending with them, and then the Roy Orbison song comes in, and you hear that man's voice, and it's just like, oh, because. I mean, it's that's the most calming ending. voice you can imagine Yeah. to end this. And, you know, and, and then he's just saying some more heinous shit in the song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you listen to the lyrics. Yep. You know? That's what I meant about the Lincoln letter at the beginning. After all the tension and violence and angst in this film, we end it with an amazingly poignant reading of, you know, Warren's fake letter. But even the way that Mannix reads it, it's where his character arc has made it all the way. He has, I don't want to say he's suddenly come to Jesus moment where now he's, you know, he would be the, you know, the champion of the black people, but he has realized the errors of his ways in judging at least Warren. You know, he is, he is, he's come full circle. He reads the leather with the reverence that it was meant. Like he doesn't make fun of it. Like he reads it and it really touches him. It's a great way to end the film. It just really is a great way to end the film. We all know everyone in that place dies. They're all dying. No one's getting out of there alive. Much like almost Reservoir Dogs and a lot like The Thing. And it is the ending of The Thing. It really is the ending of The Thing where the two of them just sit yep. there by the fire. But instead of them sitting there by the fire you know, to wait to die in the cold or to see if one of them turns into The Thing, these two gentlemen just live out their last few moments alive, sharing a moment with the letter before they die. And it was just a very point. It's probably the most touching ending Tarantino has done, even more so than the way he ends Once Upon a Time, which is nice. But this just has a little more heart to it, even though after all we've been through, it just really ends it on this really sweet note. You know, it's just really beautiful. These two characters went from arguing about race and one of them getting ready to kill him and they've been bickering back and forth like an old married couple through the entire yep. movie for them to come together and you know like the, the moment that they share at the end of it is like you're saying it's very you know like it's a cool ending for it so and the fact that they hung her instead of just killing her it's you know and they're fucking lean they're the one can't can barely move yeah. can't, i can't feel my ass no more like yeah, you know i they, can't feel my ass <laughs> but yeah they're like trying how, how can we hang this bitch you know <laughs> yep so, yeah yeah so yeah it's a very cool ending let's ask our guest some fucking questions what was your favorite song on this mostly scored soundtrack there's only three songs used uh yes david hess from last house yep. on the left and now then, now you're now you're all alone apple blossom from uh, the White Stripes. And my favorite is the There Won't Be Many Coming Home from Roy Orbison, which is from the movie The Fastest Guitar Alive. I actually have it on vinyl. The whole soundtrack. This guy. <laughs> yeah. I love the way that the song tells the story, you know, of the war and everything and as somber as it is that he ends it with it. Um, I also love the Morricone score. My favorite scene with the Morricone stuff. Other When I saw the, the road show, they just had like this graphic of the wagon going over and over and over again over like when you walked into the theater that's what yeah. was playing and that piece of music under that leading into the opening credits with the everything coming like i, I could listen to that all day yeah on a loop it's, it's so, great too yeah and the way that like we talked about it the whole timing and everything of it with the music and everything like i'm glad that he got the morricone score he wanted and you know the way that it's used and everything but the yeah who was your favorite character from this film of the hateful eight sheriff Chris Mannix. <laughs> I love his fucking character, the way he says shit. There's so many one-liners that he says. The the one he runs in and grabs that fucking blanket and yells Navajo. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I cannot, and because of the Young Guns thing as well, like it always, you know, come now, you know. So I, I love his character in it, and I hope he's in the last movie. I was kind of bummed that he didn't show up in some way in yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, what was your favorite line or monologue? from this film so it's the john ruth scene where they're you talked about it where they're at the coffee pot it starts there and then you know like the whole thing with daisy you know me and one of them is in cahoots you know (laughs) and then about john ruth's ravens and then they go over and um he gives the whole speech about like i'm taking this one into hang and she grabs the new imaginary news i love that whole thing there's so many cool monologues in here but that one the way that it segues from over there you know, to the middle of the room and like the interaction and stuff with it is really cool. It's a great moment. And yeah, Daisy, she just really, Jennifer Jason Lee just really plays it up so yeah. well in that. So my, good. My other favorite line, obviously, is to ask me if my ass is fat. And the, the whole we. And then <laughs> she's like, I can speak French, y'all. And the way that Jody looks at her like, you fucking moron. <laughs> you know, it is. So, yeah. Now, what was your favorite scene? From the film um my notes man like the one i wrote down i love the hanging of daisy at the end yeah other than the opening credit sequence where they're coming in and the building of dread and it's just like what the fuck is who's in there like it could have been yeah. freddy krueger and jason Voorhees and everything in there the yeah. way that they presented but you get to the end and the way that they did it with the friendship that these two bonded now over this thing and granted they still could fucking shoot each other at any point i think <laughs> you know and then the way that they hang her with the the blood all over and then like we talked about with the wings and stuff behind her and everything is really cool so that's my favorite scene in this one before we go i have a question yes. for you that i don't oh. want you to cut out all okay? right let's do it because you're always yes. asking everybody fucking questions sweet so all right this here is a hypothetical one and i've been thinking about it since, all right since the first episode so you get a phone call tomorrow that it's the agent of quentin tarantino and they say he's yeah. been listening to your podcast and he loves your podcast and wants to come on and be a guest oh what is Jesus. the first question you ask this son of a bitch when you get him on your zoom meeting oh and he sees your fucking basement god you know what that's a great fucking question i it's never crossed my mind that he'll be on this podcast if he was if he was like i don't i don't even know how i would ask him questions i don't know what Me i would either. say like i like i would fr- i would freeze like i th- i would definitely freeze up because you're the second biggest qt nerd that i know and i wouldn't be able to answer that question. i don't know what to to ask him because he's just like it's so out of the realm because one he's so he knows so much about film anyways like you feel dwarfed by him yeah by his knowledge like whenever i listen to him talk i'm like i think i would sound like a fucking idiot talking to him you know like what what could i possibly ask him or talk to him about that he doesn't already fucking know or that i would want to know you know so or that he's willing to talk about you're still you're stuck man. how about this if you weren't the filmmaker you are today, what do you think you would have been? If you had never made a movie, where would Quentin Tarantino have gone? In an alternate universe where Tarantino is not the filmmaker he is, where are you? If it's Rick and Morty, where did you go? If Reservoir Dogs never took off, no one did it. You did it for friends. You're still working there. Neither you and Roger Avery never go anywhere. Nothing takes off. Where do you become? VHS dies. DVD dies. Streaming wars. Yeah. In. Who does he become? Does he become like maybe he becomes a, a film, film critic. critic? Yeah. That's what he's going to say is yeah. film critic. So awesome answer. And that's a wrap on our 11th episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Wheeler, host of the Splathouse Podcast, for joining me again today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of Tarantino, as well as reciting our favorite quotes from QT's Western mystery thriller, The Hateful Eight. Now you can find the link to the Splathouse Podcast and Scareflare Records, along with their socials, in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. 
Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Devon Taylor, host of the Spectre Cinema Club, joins me once again, this time, to dissect and discuss the deaths of Charles and Sandy Smithers scene from The Hateful Eight. Or, if you're so inclined, please join me next week to check out our special Death Proof 15th Anniversary episode. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.